Okay, welcome to Movie Left, a movie review podcast. Take two. Uh, <laughs> I'm your host, Anthony Montarulo, uh, joined by my co-host, uh, LaDonna Loki. LaDonna, what's happening? Not much. And uh, Comrade Dracula. Comrade. How's it going? Eh, not bad, not bad. So, um, today we're going to be reviewing uh, Bowling for Columbine. Uh, now, if you're listening to this uh, and you're not on our, you're not a patron, uh, typically we do these for Patreon only. We do uh, movie review podcasts where we basically just talk about the movie, talk about uh, some of the issues that the movies uh, we talk about bring up. Um, and, you know, they're usually a fun conversation, a little bit looser than our normal show. Uh, a little more free-flowing. So if you like what you hear, uh, please go over to patreon.com slash move left. Uh, for $3 a month, you can be a backer and you get access to all of our previous reviews. We've reviewed JFK, uh, the Netflix movie Bright, uh, Josh Fox's uh, doc- climate change documentary, How to Let Go of the World, uh, They Live. I think we did one other one. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I wasn't uh, there yeah. for They Live. I wish I would have been. <laughs> they, I, I love They Live. They Live is such a good movie. Um, a celebration of mullets. <laughs> <laughs> did you guys see the... the um, it was Somebody did some artwork and it was like They Live, but it was Bernie and uh, Bernie Killer, and Killer Mike. Mike. Yeah, I yeah. love that. Oh, man. Oh, they're gorgeous. <laughs> that dude, is, he charges like a hundred something bucks for a print of it, but I really wanted to buy a print and like put one up on my wall, but I'm like, yeah, that's a little much, but... Yeah, how, how large a, really, a print is it? It, it well, that's the thing. It wasn't even that big. It was it, wow. it was like you know like twenty eighteen by twenty four. I'm like that's eh, not oh, much well, that's, for. That's eh, kind of big. It's like a like concert poster at least. Yeah, I mean for a hundred bucks, you better be fucking painting that thing by hand. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like I want the fucking Sistine Chapel for a hundred fucking dollars. <laughs> Pretty you much. haven't bought a lot of art recently, have you? <laughs> well, no. I mean posters. You know posters you could get usually for fairly cheap like 50 but i've gotten like most of my uh my movie posters which are all art prints for like 50 yeah, bucks i mean you got your scarface poster and you got your bob marley poster and what else is there really that's right yeah every every <laughs> college dorm room for the last 30 years yeah i know <clears throat> fucking uh spencer's gifts the poster rack in the back. sweet yeah <laughs> Get, get your corn lit biscuit poster. Well, you know, before we had flair, that was our flair, you know, in high school or college or whatever. You know, you put your little, you know, buttons on your backpack and, you know, you have your posters and that's how you express yourself as an that's individual. Right. <laughs> it was the 90s. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. So, uh, right. speaking of the 90s. <laughs> well, early 2000s, but yeah, more or less the 90s. Uh we're today we're going to be reviewing uh, Michael Moore's uh, gun violence documentary. I guess is a good way to describe it. Uh, Bowling for Columbine came out in two thousand two. Uh, won the Oscar that year actually for best uh, documentary feature, um, which I, I thought I think was well deserved after seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm before quiet. we get in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so, okay, so LaDonna, what, you have the, 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 the mystery. Uh, so I, I mentioned this to LaDonna the other day when we, when we were going to review it, and she's like, well, I didn't see this when I came out because I was boycotting Michael Moore. And I, and I laughed, and I was like, uh, ineffectual Republican, you know, uh, boycotts. But you, you said there was more to it, so please enlighten me. Oh, like, the, to- like the really effectual liberal boycotts? Come on. <laughs> but anyway. I think no, boycotts I mean, I w- of products are mostly stupid, but, you know. Yeah, they they can be. I mean, you know, the the divestitures and stuff have had some impact lately. Oh no, but. that I support. But then that that's not. Pro- I mean, like of just you yeah. know random you know 
Keurigs and shit. Like, <laughs> goofy so, as hell. You know, for those who aren't, you know, listeners regularly, I was formerly a Republican. I am a uh, mm. born again, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I have seen the light since then. And I don't know, it, it probably never made sense for me to be a Republican in a lot of things. But I had one or two issues that I, you know, was didn't want to move on. So but then you heard the podcast called Move Left Idiots and, <laughs> and you're I, like a light bulb me. went off. Exactly. <laughs> you're like, I've, I've seen the light. So so um, when uh, when this movie came out, I, I think I was still reeling from what I had seen last from Michael Moore and and he disgusted me. Um, and that was because I had seen uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 and I had seen that, you know, when I was still leaning on the conservative side and what I felt at the time. And I think there are some similar criticisms of this movie. What I felt at the time was that Moore used a lot of really cheap tactics to deceive people as far as the facts, um, you know, behind what he was talking about, as far as his editing techniques. And, you know, he did certain things to make Bush look stupid when Bush makes himself look stupid, like all on his own. He doesn't need help with that. But there were certain things that he did, certain techniques that he used in that movie, um, you know, that, that just I, it, like I saw it and it annoyed me. And I was like, I'm never putting another fucking dime in this guy's pocket. Like it made me so angry. And so it was interesting because I went into this movie First of all, not having seen it before and not wanting to look at any kind of reviews or anything, just wanting to, you know, kind of see what I thought of it um, and see if I picked up on any of the same kinds of things. And I really didn't watching it. Um, you know, I really was, you know, moved by it and and, you know, swayed by it. although I think I was already really largely in alignment with with his sort of premises for the movie. Um, but. I did afterwards go in, I think we were talking about prepping for this, and look at some of the criticisms. And interestingly, the criticisms are the same kind of thing that, you know, his edits of certain quotes, um, his uh, putting footage in certain places where he kind of makes it look like it's one thing and it's really another. And, and we can get more into detail later, but it's the same sorts of cheap things. And so that's why when I look at a documentary, I think it should be factual. It should be um, honest. And I think that there's a way to tell the story that is that way. And so, um, you know, when we get into it, a lot of the crit criticisms are the same kind of thing. And I think those are just cheap tactics and dishonest. So, hmm. Well, you know, so if I can real quick respond to that. Um, so my, I have a degree in, in uh, film production and also documentary ethics. And, um, you know, very often you might show something that might be, not exactly the same thing that you're saying it is, but it's it's the, actually the words of the person you know you're showing them. It might not be the exact same event that you're juxtaposing. It might have been a few months later, but it's in essence the same thing that the NRA would always say or Charles Neston would always say. So you know sometimes out of logistics, sometimes out of you know simply getting the essence of something, even if it's not you know technically the exact words he said at this exact rally, but it was similar to something he said at another rally. That there is footage of. Those are things that as a filmmaker that every documentary filmmaker is going to do to an extent. Um, now, you know, one of the criticisms I saw was uh, Moore is inflating his his gun death statistics. And they said, well, out of the 11,000 annual homicides in the U.S., uh, well, that's not accurate because uh, a thousand of those were police shooting people. <laughs> it's like, like that's, that's your like... fucking nitpick? <laughs> oh, OK. Yeah. As though that's OK, too. 
you know, it, and it's it, actually more than way more than eleven thousand now. It's up to something like thirteen a year, basically. Right, right. Well, I mean, he wasn't including suicides in that number. If he did, that would which be is like to... thirty thousand total. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know. So it's you know and, <laughs> way and, fucking more than anyone else is. Now, the granted, point. the the blog I was was reading was basically you know just some like right wing gun nut you know yeah uh, authoritarian bullshit but the, i mean there was some valid criticisms it was just they were you know like the, the phrase i think you've used before trying to make a mountain out of a molehill you know yeah. there really was no criticism to, beyond anything any other filmmaker would have done in the same context you know uh, with that's that's definitely a problem i've noticed with uh a lot of documentary film uh makers i mean you know bill maher uh who had that uh, movie Religious, uh, you know, who back I when also I hate and didn't watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to like him back then because he wasn't as much of a bootlicker back then, but I, I, he maybe he was and like I didn't he's always you know, been an realize asshole, it though. at the time. Oh, he's always been a prick. Yeah. But he was a prick to the people I didn't like. So I was OK with it at the time, you know, right, but, right. Um, but he was I mean, he was just making fun of dumb people who don't know any better. You know, he, well, he, he never he punched punches down up. on that movie. Yeah, exactly. Which, which, which I, I think in retrospect, I realized, but. Um, but the thing he does in that movie, the reason I brought that up is because he does, there's this whole, you guys, you haven't seen it, LaDonna, right? Have you seen it, comrade? Yeah, I've seen it. He criticizes everyone except for Jews, (laughs) for the most part. In that movie, he a little bit, I mean, he, you know, goes easy on them, but, so, no, but the reason I even bring it up is because he, uh, there's this whole sequence in the movie where he does, uh, this little video montage about all the, um, character traits that the story of Jesus stole from other um, deities that came before, because obviously if you show that, you know, another deity walked on water and moved all this shit, you'd be like, Oh, well clearly they just took the idea from that. The problem is a lot of the research he did on that is from like blogs and shit and isn't actually true. Like in terms of, you know, he said like, Oh, well the Egyptian God Horus walked on what walked on water and, you know, uh, all he had to do is read the power of myth. Joseph Campbell covered all that shit. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So, he, so he's not a guy he, who's going to. Well, he made up research. facts. And I'm like, but you know what? Your, your, your argument, if you're actually debating, you know, a religious scholar or like, you know, somebody like that, you have a good argument, which is, you know, some, some asshole just wrote this. Like, how do you know any of this is true? Right. You don't need mm-hmm. to make up facts to make your argument. So I thought that invalidated basically exactly. his entire credibility well, for that he's movie. He's also ignoring that a lot of these mythical stories did originate independently of each other because it's like, well, everyone had a a, a, a myth about lightning because lightning was everywhere. Everyone had a flood myth. They, you know, like a sure. lot of these things did come up organically. But yeah, in the Bible, they did they stole a lot of stuff from Eastern religions. That's you know, that's just kind of the nature of how storytelling evolved. So. Um, so, I mean, so, you know, I think everyone kind of does bring their own perspective to the, to the, to the subject, but. But I'm not just talking about taking liberties and I'll give you one example, um, you know, that I think is really problematic in this. And this is the, um, the Charlton Heston speech, um, you know, where he, um, is basically saying, you know, like you'll, you'll take the gun out of my cold dead hands. And, you know, they speak to the fact that, you know, right after this six-year-old kid was shot by another six-year-old, he goes out and does this rally and it's like super insensitive and all this stuff. And they really made it look like that was all together and that was all intentional and, you know, insensitive to the family. But the facts behind that are not what they are in the movie. So the facts behind it that original speech was given at a get out the vote rally in Flint that was 
um, eight months after the shooting. Um, then, you know, there were some other pieces in it. Um, he didn't actually know Charlton Heston didn't know about the, the shooting when he went, I think they did speak to that a little bit in it, but you know, they didn't really focus on that. They that really... seems a little implausible that he didn't, he says that, but I mean, do you believe that he would go to a place and not know that there was a, a well, major news story? You know, I'm sure protesters we're... were, were showing him, you know, signs of this little girl when he was walking yeah. up to the, but the thing is there's always a, a little kid who just got shot somewhere. Cause it's America. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's like, yeah, you guys shouldn't say, well, they shouldn't go anywhere. Well, I I think I they mean, shouldn't would, go anywhere. They <laughs> probably like, shouldn't go anywhere. You know, <laughs> but to, for him to be that out of touch and ignorant, you know, and that thing at the end, you can say that he got bum rushed by Michael Moore. It's like that he said so many just blatantly offensive racist things in that little speech. <laughs> yeah, you he, know? Did. he did. Oh, we well, had that problem with the civil rights movement. Like what? Well, you the know, problem our, with our the, country is a lot more diverse uh, than other. <laughs> Well, even with that, I didn't think that Moore did a very good job of, uh, I don't debating. I don't know what you would call it, but but factually I, I, was, challenging the things he said. And maybe he did, and it just didn't. He was show trying it. not to get kicked out. I think he yeah. at first he was trying to like play not placate him. Really? He was trying yeah. to, you know, he was trying to be like, well, I'm a lifelong, which he is, or, right. you know, an NRA member, all this stuff. So which is another reason why to, it's all he was he was there under false pretenses. But whatever. I mean, that's how you get. I, your I don't footage, have an issue you know? with that. If if, if it's make so, Dick if Clark it's some look shitty... like an asshole, and yeah, Dick well, Clark is an asshole, though. Yeah, I mean, I, look, <laughs> that might I not have le- been a difficult one. Yeah. <laughs> I have less of an issue with people, you know, using slightly false pretenses to to reach a powerful person who otherwise would never consent to actually speaking the truth uh as long as you're not you know bombarding them with lies when you actually are talking to them you know what i mean okay like, so uh, he- the cold dead hand speech was from a denver uh rally not even at columbine not even anywhere near there though. yeah and i mean that's that's not that they far still away show and have a rally yeah. near he shows the the footage of the weeping victims and then shows the i have only five words for you cold dead hands so that's just a fucking manipulation how is that a manipulation i I, I disagree he's showing b-roll from two different events that actually happened but he's making it seem like it's all connected in uh, one thing it's yeah it's it's two people that are are grieving from an awful gun tragedy and people who don't care about those gun tragedies i I think he's juxtaposing them that's the whole the whole idea of mezzi scene of putting two scenes back to back that's a lie to begin with that's what filmmaking is (laughs) that's i mean yeah i saw one one documentary well, it's two hours long. Are you going to show the, the eight-month span of time in between two events? I mean, no, you, you have to compress time. You can say time passes. You can say there's a lot of ways to do it, honestly, and he didn't. Yeah, I, I think every filmmaker is, is could be called a liar then because you're compressing for time. There was a criticism that, well, you can't really get a gun from a bank that quick. It's like the point he's trying to make is you shouldn't be able to get a gun from the bank in the first place. You probably went back two days later, but yeah, you shouldn't have a fucking gun at a bank. You know, they're like, well, they made it look like it was 10 minutes. It's like that's what compression of time for editing for. I mean, the original cut of the film was six hours. Do you want to watch a six hour long film? But I think those things matter. They might not matter to you, but for me, the viewer, I'm being manipulated. Those facts matter. So every every time there's an edit, you're being manipulated. Everything. Right. The only and that's thing why I don't see, like Michael Moore. <laughs> but that's okay, every but, film. But then you don't every like documentaries. I mean, <laughs> every, John, every, like that, the only thing that the, the the film can show is what the filmmaker wants you to see. Right. Everything else is cut away. You're not seeing. So and I don't you're mind seeing it if their they don't, point of view. I don't mind it if they present it that way. If it's honest, but I think that it's misleading intentionally. I mean, he does narration. It's pretty clear. It's his point of view. All right. Well, well I want to. <laughs> I want to move on from this, but I, I, I do want to just say one thing, which is 
um, I have no problem with juxtaposing victims of any shooting with any member of the NRA saying from my cold dead hands. Cause I don't think he was trying to imply that that was literally the day of, I think he was trying to imply that they could give a fuck. They just love their fucking guns, which I think is a completely true sentiment. And even the day of shootings, they say things like, well, this is not the time to talk about gun control. So I really have no issue with him trying to portray that. I I didn't at all get the sense that those rallies took place on the same day or like, you know, days later, like that's not, and maybe, you know, maybe I had read that somewhere already or something, but I, I, that's not at all what I thought uh, when I saw that. Um, but these are I, things I, that make me think it doesn't deserve an Oscar, though. That's my well, that's my I mean, view. That's, that's fair, to it. and that's your opinion. <laughs> but I do think that most documentaries do compress things for the sake of time in terms of storytelling that you know flow better narratively because they follow along with the spirit of what the what is being said or what is being portrayed, you know? Well, and I think I, your allowance of that has to do with whether or not you go along with the whole narrative. But if you, if you feel like, um, you know, that it's being intentionally misleading with, which I think it is, then, then I have an issue with it. I, I think there was, my point is, I think that there was a way, I think a better filmmaker could have told the story in a way that was not so misleading. And then I wouldn't have given him credit for it. He didn't do that. And this is his pattern. That's my point. All right. Well, that's fair. <laughs> um, I want to go through the actual... I, I have notes that kind of take us chronologically through the scenes in the movie, though, so I do want to go through a couple of those. Um, so, so we mentioned the Michigan uh, bank that will give you a gun, a uh, free gun for opening an account, which is just the most... <laughs> used to be toasters, now it's guns. Midwest fucking thing I've ever heard <laughs> in my entire life. Um, I, I, I'm curious if they still do that, because they reminded me of that... Um, well, right after Parkland, wasn't there some politician giving away an AR-15 or something like yeah. that? Mm-hmm. I don't remember yeah, the circumstances I mean, the, the, of that. George Zimmerman got his murder weapon taken away, and the cops wouldn't give it back. So the gun store said, hey, George Zimmerman, come on down. We'll give you one for free. And made a big photo op out of it. So, oh, yeah, wow. there's sick, disgusting fucking assholes that love their guns. And they'll do anything for publicity like that, including capitalizing on a murder. So you live in Michigan. I have to ask you, is Michigan mm-hmm. so much of a war zone that they need to sell ammunition in barbershops as well as having guns? I've never. And, I mean, I grew up around people that hunted during hunting season, but they yeah. weren't like nuts about it, you know, and I, and I was definitely around people. I knew I was different then, but it was, you know, it's you, you show the most extreme example. And this is another thing that everyone does for their own cause. They show they find the most abs- extreme, absurd example and put that on a pedestal as though that's the that's normal you know and it's not what i liked about what he does with the militia guys at the middle is at the beginning was he dispels a lot of the myths that people had about those people as being extremists you see they're kind of just like they like their guns um they're not ideologically extreme they're kind of just rednecks in the woods but they're all fairly <laughs> you nice, say they're not super people. refined um <laughs> Yeah, he asked him about the calendar at one point of of like all these like mostly naked women holding rifles. And they're like, well, uh," one of the guys is like, well, that's a uh, level of sophistication you wouldn't expect out of militia. Which (laughs) I just thought was fucking (laughs) hilarious. Totally. Yeah. So the the top three states in terms of gun ownership, I thought it was Wisconsin, actually, but Wyoming, Alaska and Montana. Um, And then the bottom three were D.C., Hawaii and New Jersey, which also surprises me. I mean, Jersey, really? 
Seriously? Yeah. I guess because they have strict gun laws, uh, but that's really it's surprising. All those Stepford, Stepford wives there are all packing. Yeah, but all the fucking mafia assholes live in Jersey. I'm surprised. Like, they, hey. uh, like Han- well, they're all unregistered, so. <laughs> that's true, yeah. You know, well, they probably and, have the highest propensity unregistered. These can be misleading, too, because it's it's based on guns per person. So total ah. number of guns might be higher, but guns per person. So it's like. Uh, well, yeah, they only, there's only seven people in Alaska. So <laughs> if they have one gun, it's more than uh yeah yeah so uh one thing during that sequence i, I maybe this is uh, wrong of me but i kind of love it when uh idiots get shot trying to do stupid things with what <laughs> like the guy that was trying to pose uh his dog with his fucking rifle which is you know just animal abuse i mean you know, oh, no yeah. question Flat and and accidentally got shot <laughs> by the dog <laughs> which was kind of fucking hilarious i like hilarious to think the dog me. knew what he was doing <laughs> Yeah. Oh, when, he, when he's talking to that cop, though, the, the Michigan State Trooper, he's like, so oh my you, gosh. Do, you, do you think the dog knew what he's doing? And he's like, uh, I don't know. Completely straight face. He answers well, it like it's a serious tell, uh. question. And then he asked him, well, did you charge the dog? And he's like, well, actually, in Michigan, people are allowed to commit crimes that dogs are not allowed to commit. And I was like, did you fucking just say those words? People because- are allowed... That's the other piece that I think the mainstream media is guilty of and he's guilty of here, too. I, there are idiots out there. There are absolutely idiots out there. But I also think that sometimes they cut this footage to make to go along with the narrative of the rural, you know, stupid person, basically. And, and this is the same yeah. thing that's dangerous happening with Trump voters right I mean, now. That guy was the when sheriff, you act though. Like, yeah. When you I, act like they're all racist and they're all stupid mm-hmm. and they're all assholes, I think we miss an opportunity to talk to them. Maybe that maybe that was completely honest and he is just an idiot, but maybe it's part I, of a I narrative. I think he was trying to joke around with him just because they're both yeah, from I, Michigan. <laughs> he was trying to, thought, you know, like maybe he'll say something funny back. And instead he, he just literally responded, but he said it in a way that makes it sound as though you're allowed to shoot people in Michigan as long as it used to get charged for it and the dogs are not. Yeah, people aren't allowed to shoot each other either. <laughs> See, and I would, the way he said it was funny. I would trust that footage more if it weren't cut up. If I saw the entire exchange, you know, all at once, then I'd go, okay, this actually yeah, happened and I this mean, is how he answered. But when it shows Michael Moore asking the question separate from the guy answering it, then I don't even know how the question was asked. Was it asked in a way that made it obvious that it was well, ridiculous? Sit- or I don't know. Well, most well, you of the sit-downs he does is oneers. Yeah, he yeah. does his wonders. He doesn't film himself, meaning that you just hear him off camera, which a lot of documentarians do uh, exclusively. But he he oftentimes will be like side by side with his subject. But in that particular interview, he just had the camera on the guy and was just asking him questions from behind the camera. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't really I think wouldn't mistrust it if I didn't have a reason to from past, you know. Okay. So one of the my personal favorite documentary film of all time is Peter Davis's Hearts and Minds. And that was maybe the most controversial film ever made um, because it was made about the Vietnam War during the Vietnam War. And it won the best picture. And uh, I think it was Bob Hope. And uh, who's the other uh, Rat Pack guy who was real famous? Anyway, they were like co-hosting that year. And when that film won best picture, best uh, documentary, they boycotted the rest of the Oscars that oh. they were hosting. <laughs> and there's a shot of uh, General William Westmoreland. Well, there's several shots of him being interviewed. And he he says at one point, the um, the Oriental values human life less than, than we do in America. Oh. And Charming. then he cuts to a shot of a, of a, a Vietnamese child bawling its eyes out because his father's been killed and he's being buried, right? 
And people said, well, that's manipulative. It's not fair to show someone saying that those people don't care about life and then show them actually caring about life. Well, <laughs> no, that's not manipulative. That's showing a, a, a contrast of well, you oftentimes someone's bigotry yeah. versus the reality. That one I get. Yeah, that one I get. I'll give you it a pass. <laughs> for, for documentaries, I think it's important, and a lot of documentarians will do this, where you illustrate whether or not somebody's telling the truth or lying with their statements. You don't necessarily narrate over what they're saying, but you'll, they'll say, like you just said that, and then you show immediately over their, their speech, you show the total opposite of what they're saying to illustrate, you know, what you, what, you know, you know, the truth to be of the situation. Mm -hmm. Well, in the Um, commentary track on the DVD, he says, well, people said that, you know, putting that in the film in such a way looks, makes him look heartless. He said, well, it was a heartless thing to say, but I tried putting it in other places, but no matter where you put it, it still sounds terrible. So I just left it in the first spot I had. Well, also, what's more heartless, saying that and showing that over him saying that or, you know, the people that fucking butchered that guy's father for, you know, (laughs) bullshit reasons. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know. Again, we always have the total backwards priorities in America when it comes to... It would have been more interesting to me had more, and this is one of my critiques of the film, had more really tried to show all of these individuals, these various individuals, as as complex rather than to go along with them as sort of a stereotype of, you know, the, the rural idiot hick person with the guns kind of thing. And I think there were moments that he did it, but I think he could have gone further because, and this is part of the, the criticism of, you know... The the things we learned about the film afterwards, that the media went with the first narrative, you know, that that came out and just jumped on that and never really challenged it. We're all complex creatures. We're all complex individuals. It's very easy to demonize one another by making us out to be, you know, something simple. But but the reality is much more complex. And and I'm sure you'll get into this, Anthony, with with some of the other criticism of the film. You know, these kids are much more complex than they were made out to be. But you know, it was very easy for people people to go, oh, well, trench coat mafia, you know, they're goths, therefore bad. And, you know, and not yeah. look any deeper to real societal causes or maybe have to look at ourselves and say, wow, any of us could have done this in different circumstances. So I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more later in the in the, you know, the film. But I do want to uh, just in general, I think that my only maybe major or slightly larger than minor criticism in the movie is that it's a little unfocused in terms of when you hear Bowling for Columbine, you'd think that it would be a document uh, documentary about Columbine or about gun violence. But I think it turns more into a narrative on why Americans are more violent, which is fine. And I think that's what kind of is, is great about the movie is that it illustrates a lot of the reason that we're more violent. Uh, I think at least in terms of the thesis of the movie is that we're just constantly peddled with uh, fear and violence 24-7 from the news media, from, you know, the, just just the general narrative in America is is be fearful, you know. Be, so I think that, yeah, that's well, kind of what the movie became. We're also constantly at war, you know, and he interviews the guy at the nuclear missile plant, and he's like, I don't see any connection between us constantly <laughs> building weapons to exterminate the human race and these what these kids did. One is I senseless, the him. other makes sense. <laughs> I felt yeah, for I, him when he was saying I, that. I slightly no, feel for some of the PR people in this guy. movie. I didn't feel bad for that guy at all. He gets paid position. to lie. I've been that guy. It's horrible. <laughs> he goes well, home and can't sleep at night. If he can't sleep at night, he needs to get a different fucking job then. And I did. Yeah. But. Yeah. Sorry, I so, wasn't trying to draw um, an illusion. <laughs> 
um, you know, during the, when the, when he's talking to the Michigan, Michigan militia, um, uh, you know, one of the guys is like, well, who's going to defend your kids, the cops, the government, um, which is just funny because those are the people that, you know, just suck off fucking Blue Lives Matter constantly and are constantly talking right. about how you have to respect the rights of cops. But then when it comes to their guns, they the cops and the government are the bad guy. It's just they're so backwards in their ideology when it comes to that. And I'm not just saying backwards, but, you know, anyone, people in New York are like that, too, that that love their guns. People that fucking I can't just tell you how many guns. people here in Wisconsin. I mean, that that narrative is, you know, I, I've had the debate on people uh, with people on Facebook, that exact conversation about it's it's up to them to protect their family, yada, yada, you know, who wants to have to wait for police. We're out in you know the middle of nowhere and farm country, whatever. So I don't know. You trust the police or you don't. I don't know what to say. Well, it, it's just yeah, it's just goofy because it, it's very they, it, they're very selective. Like, I don't fucking trust the police as far as I can throw them. Like, I think that they're a necessary element of society. I think obviously the complete. The system needs a complete, you know, blowing up and revamping from, you know, step one. But uh, I don't fucking trust the police is currently constituted. Well, I, I don't think they do either. They're, they're very anti-authoritarian. But when they see a bunch of black people protesting, being killed by cops, suddenly you can see how those right wing militia guys, which side of that equation they're going to fall on. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess so. Your your point is that's hypocritical. They're just doing it because they want to mask their hatred for black people, so they pretend that it's about the cops that they love and not the fact that they yeah. just don't like the black yeah. people who are it's, saying that our lives matter. You know? There's there's definitely you know the anti-government types. They're you know obviously very anti-government, but they don't see uh, the military as, as part of the government somehow. But they don't want to get pulled over for speeding or drinking. But you know, push comes to shove, they're still going to want to see cops beat up. You know communist or antifa or whatever so back yeah. to the title of bowling for columbine i i kind of agree with you it's it doesn't quite fit um you know and i can understand if he just did a documentary called gun violence in america or you know talking about the kids at columbine or just whatever violence that, in you america know, yeah yeah not as many people you know would have watched it that you sort of need a, a catchy title um but yeah, it was it was misleading. And the other part is that I never really understood in watching the movie. So did the kids wake up and first thing go bowling before they did all this? Wait, so I, I don't want to talk about the Columbine thing yet because that's a little later in the uh, outline. But we, we, we okay. will talk about the bowling stuff because I, I have some notes on that. But um, OK, cool. So, you know, after the militia thing, uh, he goes and talks to James Nichols, uh, who <laughs> is quite the character. Uh, James Nichols is the brother of Terry Nichols, who is one of uh, Timothy McVeigh's accomplices or, you know, <laughs> friends, whatever you want to call him. Because I because the, the official narrative from the government was that Timothy McVeigh acted alone, uh, you know, detonated all those bombs. And he's the sole person responsible. And then they, you know, put him to death and then justice served, yada, yada, yada. Um a lot of people who study that case believe that that's totally bullshit and well, not yeah. that he didn't do it, but he had several accomplices. A lot of people uh, in the white uh, nationalist or, you know, mil uh, militia movement uh, had intricate, uh, had an intricate hand in helping plan and carry out the event. Uh, but because it's a much easier narrative to say, like, look, this is the guy we have evidence on. This is the guy we caught. He's the only one responsible. We're going to put him to death and justice is served. Um, you know, there's significant evidence that uh, there, there's this guy they call John. D and this is not from the movie. I just I've done a lot of I've watched a lot of documentaries and read a lot about Oklahoma City and a lot of these crazy fucking, you know, right wing uh, right wing militias. Uh, there's a, a ton of reports that day about uh somebody that was in the Hertz van with him 
this guy they call John Doe, John Doe number two, who is slightly darker skinned, and nobody knows who that fucking guy is, like still to this day. Um, so he was for sure an in-person accomplice, but they also think that the Nichols had significant role in helping him prepare the bombs and plot out the, uh, well, you hear the things this guy says. Well, this guy's a fucking he's lunatic. Certainly, <laughs> clearly sympathetic, um, and they he really has to job. push him to 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 say that the bombing was wrong. He's like, "Well, I, I guess not." But why did it happen? <laughs> why did it happen though? No one ever asked why he did it. You know, it's like he he's, he wants to come clean and be like, he's "Of course, I fucking like did to it." Say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they did a better job, I think, of of showing the complexity of his character. It's sort of like you know, it, you start up at the beginning. It's like harmless organic soil tofu farmer you know all natural and then like it sort of creeps up on you and you're like oh shit this guy's a psychopath well, you can he see totally it behind his it. eyes too it's just fucking you know well, yeah i mean i think that doesn't mean that they uh didn't uh portray those those michigan militia types accurately i think it's just that, that terry or uh, which what was his first name terry nichols terry, uh, no, uh, no terry's the one that actually went to jail uh, james oh, yeah. was the one he interviewed yeah i think he's just more of a character you know, and I think yeah, he's definitely some people are just fucking weirdos. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of those in the Midwest. Um, I love uh, Michael Moore. At one point, says to him, uh, "You know, why not use Gandhi's way? Gandhi, you know, defeated the British Empire. He didn't have to fire a single shot." And then uh, James Nichols goes, "Oh well, I'm not familiar with that." After this whole long soliloquy about like you know trying to sound. My problem with a lot of these assholes is that like they think they're these genius revolutionaries, but. Mm. Really, they're just kind of uneducated assholes who with like with inferiority complexes and they think that they sound smart. Like we've experienced a lot of this with certain people that we deal with. They they use big words to sound smart, but really they're fucking morons and they don't have any well, kind is, of grasp of there's history. There's confirmation bias that you can go down, you can you can live in an echo chamber and you can go down a path and you can learn a lot of things, you know, to support a given narrative if that's the way you want to do it. And, you know, we're moving I think increasingly in the direction in our society where that's happening. So people can be, you know, sort of seemingly smart or know some big words or whatever on, on their narrow piece of a topic. And if they have no one around them who's challenging them on that, and if they insulate themselves, then they never will get smarter. They never will expand their minds. This is, you know, a problem with social I, media right now. I always thought yeah. that applied well to people in the in rural areas. And when you talk about, you know, having like a silo, <laughs> You know, yeah, like that's like the literal analogy, like just <laughs> a couple of guys like hanging out in the in the barn, you know, in like the silo, grain silo. And there's only like six of them. They just reaffirm their own confirmation bias over and over. So when we talk about like, you know, like a siloed, you know, these different realms of thought are all siloed. Like I literally Quite think literally about yeah. farmers in the in the in the country in a grain silo. <laughs> But you could tell that you could tell Nichols was uh, super uh, with it and and normal when he uh, showed Michael Moore the forty four that he sleeps with under his bed and then put it to his head. Um, but you know the other piece of you know them going and talking to his ex wife. I guarantee you, I know a lot of women that have been divorced, and if you ask them about their ex husband, they are almost all going to portray that guy as a psychopath who could do wait, anything they to at any his time. Ex-wife? Yeah, they, I don't he that. was he was saying how um, you know that that if they thought they were walking into some kind of a Waco situation oh. when they were, um, because having talked to her, that was the way she portrayed him as though he was just going to shoot everybody and all of that. Well, you're saying he was the crazy ATF said and, that. Yeah. Because they talked to his ex-wife. Yeah. 
So, well, but I, I think that was him editorializing a little bit too, because if I if I knew that I was going to the house, the other thing that they don't mention that Moore doesn't mention, he doesn't mention that address is the address McVeigh gave at a hotel when he had to write down his residence at a hotel because he's a fucking genius and couldn't think of a fake address and, and wrote down <laughs> Wasn't or trying, a fake I name guess. or a fake name at that point. He you know he had used fake names, but I guess maybe. The guy uh, caught him off guard. He's just like, uh, 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 Slimothy. Uh, <laughs> or he probably thought he was, you know, he was, he was doing something really sneaky. He's like, if the heat comes down, my brother's going to take it all. <laughs> They'll never connect well, us. And he's an, uh, McVeigh is another guy who thinks he's smart and uses big words, but really is just an uneducated fucking doofus when you actually listen to him for more than 10 minutes, you know. But um, hope he but, hears so, that. Not that they let us do that. They really didn't put him out there all that much. Um, once they got <laughs> well, that's him. true yeah but no but the reason i uh mentioned that is because uh, so I, I i don't blame the atf at all for thinking that they could be walking into a death trap because that was the address that mcveigh gave so when they went to go visit james nichols and terry nichols it, they, they could have thought they had another waco because they you know that was the address that mcveigh gave as his residence so i like i think he that was him editorializing to make you know his wife his ex-wife look bad as opposed that to that could be too i mean because you know, he did yeah he did say it's kind of like oh you know did you make any bombs I'd oh the little, little ones gl- yeah, you know twitchy. and then it's like you know he, he gets you know, you know you hear bigger and bigger things that they created and <laughs> and this is another thing that i think I, I wish um you know that these kinds of films would do better on because i think that um there are many many people in rural areas that play around with small bombs. I mean, they're just, there are our kids, you know, that just yeah. in high school or whatever, you know, the anarchist cookbook, they get, I'm sure you'll get into that later. They mentioned that and in the movie. Yeah. What is the difference between the ones that wind up going and bombing huge buildings and the ones that just play around with that shit mm-hmm. and walk away? I can tell you what the difference is. <laughs> Ambition. <laughs> um, High, you, highly motivated. <laughs> well, they, they mentioned the Anarchist Cookbook because he was talking to that one kid in the bar who said that he was put up on like a list of potential school shooters. Yeah, you know, and he's he like, anarchist... "Did you make any bombs?" And he's like, "Oh no, I never did." Well, I mean, tennis ball bombs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, what a bucket of napalm? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, blew up a few. You know, it's, it's just like they, it doesn't <laughs> register. They don't think of it as bad. It's just like, oh, we were just doing it for fun, so we weren't actually. The, uh, that, that reminded me of uh, you guys watched Chappelle's show when it was on. Yeah, uh, a little bit. Yeah. Well, the, at one point during like the Rick James stories, he like the, he asked him about like slapping Charlie Murphy. He's like, "No, I don't remember slapping Charlie Murphy. Why would I do that? You know, I would just slap somebody in the face just to do it. That's not something I do." And then like ten seconds later, he's like, "Yeah, I slapped Charlie in the face." Like that was <laughs> that's what it reminded me of. It was such a like <laughs> goofy fucking moment. Um, but yeah, no, people so the, deciding whether they're going to lie or be honest, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or forget that they lied 10 seconds earlier. <laughs> um, so, you know, they, they, they talk about that the kid had the anarchist cookbook. And the anarchist cookbook is an interesting, that's a podcast in itself. Um, there's a really mm-hmm. interesting documentary on Netflix about the guy who wrote the anarchist cookbook. I, I, I can't recall the name of it at the moment, but... Um, you know, the guy actually was a leftist. He was like a leftist anarchist. And he wrote the cookbook <laughs> as like a, a a way for kind of leftist revolutionaries. And, and, and I don't even think he even really meant for people to use it like in practicality. He just wanted the info out there. But he, all the info he gathered were from books that existed, military manuals, field guides, stuff that was not, you know, restricted. And he just compiled it into this one book. 
Um, and he obviously it, today has a lot of regrets about making it because all these right wing asshole militia groups have ended well, up using it to make. And the, in the film, know. the filmmaker berates him during oh, these you interviews. I've, yeah, 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 I've seen it. You want to talk about unethical? You know, the whole <laughs> yeah, movie. He, he he's does, like, well, he don't you feel bad bit. that this happened? This happened? It's like he, like you said, he aggregated information that was already out there, mostly from books in the library. You know, yeah, and then yeah. he just finally goes, oh, I guess it was bad. All those bad things happened because of the book I wrote. It's it's like, he, I he understand why you don't, bit, yeah. you know, like in Fight Club, they don't give out the real recipe recipe to make uh, you Mom, know, dynamite yeah. from soap because every, it's, it, aggregating information can be a way to make it far easier for someone to do it. I understand that. But these to, days to, you have the Internet. You can get any of that. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. But just to berate the guy for writing a book 20 you know, however many decades ago. He had ago. no idea what that book could have done. I don't think he had any clue that that book would become what it would have become, or he probably would not have wrote it, I'm sure. Well, maybe, but it's just, it's, I, I felt what that filmmaker did, did something pretty unethical in trying to, you know, instead of approaching the subject honestly about, you know, everything, it was like he just wanted to get the guy to say he regretted writing the book ultimately. Yeah, he, he wanted the guy to cry about, like, all the violence that's been perpetrated on behalf of his, you know, the book that he wrote or... It's just Which disingenuous, though. Like, yeah. I created this book, you know, on, on fucking how to make bombs, but I didn't think anyone was going to use it. What the fuck is that? I don't know. It, it, people should watch the documentary. It's an interesting... It, I don't think he I've thought it would become a big book over the years. I don't think he thought it would become a big book. Like I thought he, the, he I didn't think he thought it would be as ubiquitous as it is. Like, I think that was another thing where he was like anybody who knows an eight or 10 or 12 year old boy would know that that book's <laughs> oh, yeah, going to be people a big that had deal. The anarchist cookbook. I've known um, a lot of people over the years, but yeah. he wrote it in like the sixties or seventies. It was not the, the, the times were not the same. I, I, I will say um, yeah, hardly the of, most subversive piece of literature written of the, of the era at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, See, I, he he intercuts a lot of just random newsreel footage. Uh, one that was really funny to me was that the town of uh, Virgin, Utah, has a law requiring all <laughs> residents to own guns. Like requiring yeah. all residents, not you know. Um, I think which, there are more I mean, towns actually since then that do that. Yeah. And, and that joke kind of writes itself, so I wouldn't even yeah. make it. Um, you know, they also show that news clip of the blind guy with a gun, which is just you know. We're normal country guys. I swear we're normal country. It's I felt almost like with that, and it's like it's just to prove a point that there's you're never going to let anything stop you from that God-given right to to do it. You know, just to say you can do it. Well, like, what's the point? We are. Like, what country. do you get out of it? What do you get out of it? You can't see what you did. It's like what you just like the vibration and the, the noise of it. <laughs> like what? What? Uh, <laughs> we did, but. It, yeah, and stuff like that I, I, I like that he put in because I just feel like it does show. I mean, I, I would shudder to think of any other country that would allow a blind person to fucking own a firearm or, you know, have a have a town or a city ordinance that hey, requires You know what that blind kid can't firearm. use, though? What? Lawn darts. <laughs> it's true. true. Yeah. Could kill true. somebody. You got to be careful. Uh, I mean, uh, you who never knows know. where it's going to land. Um. So uh, that that economic development PR video for Littleton, Colorado, uh, that, <laughs> that, that was a gem. That, that was something, man. I, I can I, I seriously, that's like something you see in like a spoof video, but that was like a legit, you know, yeah, it, it's like every uh, Tim and Eric uh, yeah. Adult Swim thing was basically that video. Um, yeah, and then like the you know the guy was like nodding and proving like, hey, maybe that it, maybe suburban sprawl is where we want to build our nuclear bombs. 
Oh my god, horrible. Um, yeah, so you mentioned earlier the Lockheed Martin PR guy who's not sure why uh, the kids would want to resort to violence. You know, juxtaposed with shots of giant fucking you know warheads being driven through town on their way to you know whoever whatever Middle Eastern country we happen to be in favor with uh, that year. You know, selling them. Mm these massive arms and yeah and that's that's the big connection i think the film does try to do that everyone's uncomfortable with especially right-wingers is is comparing our domestic gun lust with our foreign policy you know or at least at the time they were outraged by it and i think that's the biggest that's the big red herring in the room that nobody talks about that either which is yeah you know, I mean, not even just soldiers coming back with PTSD and the training to do this, but just the general idea that, you know, if, if the president says this is OK to do it, if Obama says our drone strikes are moral and just, well, then who, you know, <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's just that it's, it's no, such a yeah, huge yeah. hole. It's such a huge hole in, in morality. And it is such a connection to me. I just I, I don't know how people miss that. It makes well, the connection with the fear mongering that they talk about. What's the difference between us and Canada? You know, the way that our media constantly keeps us afraid and, you know, whatever, you know, Russia or did or didn't do, you know, all of the the stuff that's out there in the media that's trying to divide us no and make us afraid and, and, <laughs> and, you know, prey <laughs> upon our, our biggest fears. You know, that's that's part of it. Every time I'm not afraid enough, I'll go read uh, Patricia Arquette's tweets uh, and then... <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, she she's she's, she's a real fucking uh, genius, real fucking road scholar. She is. Um, uh, no, so and and I'll we'll talk about this a little bit at the end after we go through the recap. But I I think that was you know kind of that that little segment was kind of the whole thesis of the movie, which is that we've normalized violence so much in this country because of our just endless bombardment of all these poor brown countries that. Uh, that might be the reason why we have so much gun death because it's just so fucking normal to us. The, the, this violence that no other country perpetrates on the scale that we perpetrate and certainly don't do it without, you know, watchdogs and attention coming to them. And we, and it's just like, you know, we're in fucking eight conflicts right now. You know, we're bombing eight countries and nobody fucking, I haven't seen a single piece uh, of news uh, in the mainstream media on any of those conflicts i i assume shit still goes on on a day-to-day basis i'm sure we're not just sitting around you know the, the our soldiers aren't just sitting around playing fucking cards on bases like no they'll do a story they're, they're, if it's if it's uh like there was a helicopter that crashed with seven american um uh, troops on it but they didn't call them troops of soldiers they called them service members you know well, why do we still have service members there dying in a helicopter crash you know it, it's just it's yeah. they try to erase it as much as possible because we're conducting bombing campaigns in that country and they just don't want to make it seem like that. So they make it seem like they're, you know, guys who are just stationed at a base at, in a non-conflict zone that happened to accidentally get in a helicopter crash, you know. That's I think the, way the other thesis in the film, though, is that evil socialist undercurrent of, you know, talking about inequality that makes it so relevant today. The fact that, you know, countries like Canada and other places that don't have this violence also have things like, you know, national health care. Go figure. Yeah. You know, they don't have homelessness. They don't have indigence. They don't even know what they are. <laughs> yeah, I mean... no, that was that was one of my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's just that that, you know, uh, poverty breeds violence. I mean, it's just it, it the, the two are, you know, just totally linked whether you know whether you want to admit it or not it's just when you're when you're in poverty and you're desperate you're gonna have to do something to to survive and it's just 
you you wonder why we have so much violence. We also have probably the most, you know, in, in terms of it, income inequality, we're we're the worst in the world in terms of the rate yeah. of our top. You want to you know. be safer, you know, help your neighbor that's that's struggling. Put away your gun and you know actually give them a <laughs> hand up once in a while. Well, and that's what one of the guys talks. He says, um, I forget exactly who he was in the film. One of the talking heads, uh, I think it was somebody who written a book and studies crime. And said, you know, this, these mass shootings, we don't have that kind of thing in the in the urban areas or in the rural areas. It's in the suburbs. And, you know, Trey Parker uh, in the, who, from South Park is in the film. He talks about that. And he says, yeah, it's a boring place where everyone is miserable. And, you know, all the advertising tells kids they're not going to be popular. No one's going to fuck them. Um, you know, Marilyn Manson kind of touches on that, too. But it's, you know, LaDonna, you're saying, like, you know, to help your neighbor. These are people living in cul-de-sacs where they barely know their neighbor. They're, they're completely isolated from each other socially, but they still have the pressure of performing and trying to be the best at the same time. So that kind of isolation and pressure to be better than everyone and, and outdo each other, um, it breeds fear and it breeds paranoia. So all of that, you know, you know, watch out for the Africanized bees. They're bad. Not like the oh my God, that was European so, bees. So absurd. Yeah. That, it, that it's whole like segment. that stuff feeds on them because they're, you know, it's pr- predominantly white communities, but they're not well-connected white communities to begin with. They're not even as connected as like the rural militia types where they actually do have something of a community and seem much more well-adjusted than, than some of the people in suburbia do. Um, yeah. So, Oh, and slight correction, it was Matt Stone, not Trey Parker. Trey Parker's the blonde one. Oh, you know, all those white cartoon creators look alike. <laughs> they all look the same to me, I know. Um, so, you, <laughs> But so the Lockheed guy says, you know, all these missiles are used to defend us. Uh, and I think one of the most effective moments in the movie, or, you know, segments in the movie is when Moore shows right after that uh, the list of all the countries that we've overthrown uh, or staged coups against democratically elected leaders or just elections we've meddled in, which is just, you know. That was so uh, relevant to today. It's even worse now. Exactly. I was like, just, I I was like, oh man, this is so, you know. Well, and he juxtaposes that with the song, What a Wonderful World. And Oh my gosh, I was dying with that. Yeah. That that form of juxtaposing, you know, a song that's like kind of sugary sweet with horrible, brutal images of war was something that uh, Peter Davis kind of pioneered with his film uh, Hearts and Minds about the Vietnam War. Um, it's incredible. I think there's actually Michael Moore has actually talked about that film quite a bit because it combines almost every different style of documentary filmmaking into one film, which had never been done at the time. And, and I'll just um, check that one out. Michael, it's yeah, on the Criterion Collection. It's it's far and away the best documentary ever made, in my opinion. Um, mm. But yeah, it's it's very much it's very similar to what Michael Moore has kind of uh, continued to to follow, kind of you know interviewing people and stock footage and montage. Uh, in juxtaposition that seems somewhat unfair, but you're kind of trying to contrast, you know, what somebody says versus the reality. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just funny in that montage, they showed that within a year we gave weapons to Iraq, uh, an aid to Iraq to fight Iran. Uh, and then literally a year later we gave weapons and aid to Iran to, uh, fight Iraq. It's just well, like, we didn't give it, we sold it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. We sold it, but it's just like, how anyone could defend anything that we've done in the Middle East since the 50s is just fucking unbelievable to me because it's just... I can't defend anything we do in this country. <laughs> no, that that the U.S. is... Well, that's true, yeah. You mean just domestically, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that footage he ends it with, I've never actually seen that angle of the, the September 11th, the plane going in, which was really like a chilling 
shot because it was like just somebody, you know, shooting on their, you know, home video I mean, camera. Ha- have you ever seen a shot of the planes hitting the World Trade Center that wasn't chilling though? I no, mean, I know, but I, I, it was a little extra chilling just to hear the the people like you know. Oh yeah, well, it fades into the audio. Yeah, because t- yeah, still typically have PTSD. Yeah, I typically mean, when you show I, on the I news, relive they, it when I see it. Yeah, I mean, typically they show on the news just like the news camera, the uh, the helicopter footage, which is usually silent. You know, so it was just very. Mm-hmm. It brought you. It brought me to that moment to to hear audio from people that you know. It, it was just. That was a crazy shot. I've never seen well, that before. Well, and, yeah. and this came out just a, not even a year after that happened. So that had to, yeah, you know, yeah watching wow. that at the same time. Jesus Christ. You know, obviously, when I first saw this film and when 9-11 happened, I was aware of our, you know, imperialist history for the last 50 years. Even much earlier than that, I was aware of that. So I was kind of like, well, yeah, who doesn't know that shit? Well, it turns out most Americans don't know that shit because it's not taught to anybody. We're completely oblivious of, of all these coups and... Uh, you know, toppling of, of democracies that we've done uh, in the name. Yeah, of... because if we taught kids that, they might actually, you know, stop it from happening. <laughs> yeah, well, they got the internet now, so maybe mm-hmm. that'll change. So um, right after that, they go right into the Columbine segment, you know, which is the kind of the the basis for the title of the movie. Um, and there's a really good book that every I think everyone interested in the subject should read. Uh, it's just called Columbine by uh, Dave Cullen. And it's the most detailed analysis of the events surrounding uh, Columbine, the events on the day, and of the two individuals who committed, uh, you know, the Columbine massacre, uh, uh, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. Um, and the movie kind of yada yadas the entire narrative from that day, but the narrative that we know from Columbine is almost totally wrong. And I think the movie, one of the kind of flaws of the movie is that it kind of goes along with the narrative of these kids that were bullied and all. So, right. But, and, and, you know, to its credit, it was written not super long after the, you know, like 10 years later, but we, and I think a lot of the stuff we didn't really know until it was really dug into in Dave Cullen's book, which I believe came out like mid two thousands. But, um, yeah, well, I mean, one so, of the pieces of audio that they played was from one of the fathers saying, my son is a part of the trench cut mafia. So you can see where sure. that, you know, people go yeah. on to that right away. So but that was total bullshit. Now, the trench coat mafia um, was it was kind of a gang of people that they weren't an actual gang. They were just like dudes who hung out, who thought they were cool and called themselves that. Well, they, were like, um, they were like computer and, techies in it was yeah. a high school club. There was no guns involved. It was. Yeah. You know. And they just would get in fights with jocks. So they called themselves trench coat mafia because, you know, whatever. Um, but but Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were not part of that friend group. They weren't in the trench. They just wore trench coats that day because it helped hide all their fucking guns. Like they had a, they were when they took them off and you see in the security camera footage, they had guns, you know, in shoulder holsters and like leg hold. They, they were, you know, it, like like in the Matrix when fucking Neo opens his coat. That's what they looked like. Um, so that was why they wore trench coats, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love the Matrix. Um so, you know, that, the, but the problem with that was, and again, this is the problem of 24 hour news is that when you, you, and, and he show, and he actually played a lot of audio of this just heartless, uh, news footage or news audio of like, you know, MSNBC, hi, can we have a, a comment from the shit? Like just constant, you know, people just trying to, to fucking get a scoop, uh, as this tragedy is literally unfolding and these kids are still getting mowed down in the school by these two fucking lunatics that's um, the media 
the, that, <laughs> the, the, the entire blame falls on the on the media for the for the botched narrative and everything because what they were doing, unbeknownst to the cops, even is that they were set up on one side of the school and people were running out and they were grabbing these kids not like physically but they were like hey come here come here and they were asking and they were interviewing them and you know if you talk to a high school kid in a normal circumstance, you're lucky if you get a straight answer you know. Or, or an intelligent answer, let alone when they're fucking panicked and just fleeing from gunfire. They're just like, oh, yeah, I think he was targeting all the black kids. Or, oh, yeah, he was, you know, they, they were looking for the gay kid. Like, you know, th- these kids said these things. Do you think things. it was any different with Parkland? I think it was I'm the sure, same. No, they were sure. trying to get people that were exactly. freaking out over it, like, as soon after as they could. Well, at one point, the sheriff's I mean, office had to, and the <clears> FBI <throat> had to fucking call CNN and Fox and these people and saying, stop putting them on the air the shooters there's there's tvs in the school the shooters are going to know where these kids are because they were putting this was like the first kind of mass shooting when cell phones existed yeah. they were putting these kids on the air and these kids were like oh my god i'm in my english class and we're ducked down and we we hear the gunfire outside and the fbi was like we will fucking cut your feet if you don't stop putting these kids on the air because they're gonna give away their location to the shooters it's just well insane. you know it's it's 2018 and it, you know that was the first sort of uh 24 hour news cycle mass shooting um and of course the media you know they they salivated that stuff because it gets the highest ratings and it costs the least amount of money to produce you know uh it investigative journalism very low ratings lots of money to do it and non-existent it's pretty much yeah you know chris rock has that had that joke recently about you know in, in if we had real equality we'd have you know white mothers crying on camera too you know we need justice for chad uh well you know i mean in in reality <laughs> that was one of the criticisms the nra had that was kind of accurate about the media they love crying white mothers over their dead kids that'll get tons of ratings you it's know true. so so Absolutely. yeah that is i mean everything else they said was completely horrifying but that was one critique i was like all right yeah that's you got it there but, you know, it, it's that that the media loves to push those fear narratives, not because they're if we're, there's no other reason that it gets higher ratings. They get higher ad revenue. It's money. That's all it is. Well, yeah, but, but the, we blame media, but it's us because we're the ones consuming that shit. Oh, and we're I the ones know. that are <laughs> I mean, not me. I think it, maybe not you. Yeah. Maybe not us on this podcast, but certainly, you know, if it bleeds, it leads is there for a it's reason. Clickbait is there to... for a reason. That's what people respond to. I find it hard, though, to to blame people because they're they they buy into whatever they were fed as children. Like when you're a kid, you just understand that the the man reading you the news on, you know, the anchor reading you the evening news is telling you the truth. So it really the entire concept of journalism and journalistic integrity um, is just almost non-existent anymore. So I I do find it hard to blame. But there, yeah, I I think it's hard to blame people too, because we have built in, they just don't know any better. You know, we have built in fear responses in order to survive. And we got this far by responding to those fear impulses to, to uh, avoid, you know, fight or flight kind of stuff. So the media knows how to has, knows how to prey on that stuff. You know, what you don't know might kill you just because uh, you don't know what disease X might be. Doesn't mean it can't kill you. You know, it's like, it's, until we wind up with adrenal fatigue because we're constantly stressed. I mean, yeah, yeah. But, well, then they, we turn they, it off. They show that, more you know, right at 11. The, the people that are more right wing, more likely to own guns are far more susceptible to that kind of fear brand advertising. They respond to it. So they're going to keep doing it. You know, um, the, the really heartbreaking consequence is that after one of these big events, the schools or police 
completely overreact to to kids doing very benign things and punish yeah, them. Yeah, they show that a lot. And they show that in the film. Yeah. I, I want to read something really quick. This was just in the news to, from the Detroit News. Uh, after the Parkland shooting, 17 people killed. Um, a kid in Michigan, 17-year-old Ronald Bowen, was uh, a, is being faced with charges of threatening terrorism after throwing an egg at his teacher. So he egged wow. his teacher. He's now he got out on twenty five thousand dollars personal bond. Holy um, fuck! But he's facing twenty years in prison for uh, threats of terrorism for throwing this egg. And apparently he told Was he a person of color. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There you go. Yeah. So then there's Shocker. a quote from this. This is the quote where it's it's like you can tell they don't understand what they're doing in feeding the fear. Uh, it's a quote from an assistant Oakland County prosecutor. Quote: It's almost a daily occurrence now. You've got to take it seriously. You've got to trust it. You've got to make sure there's not a danger to anyone involved in this. Walton said he's not sure what's motivating the threats, but they have definitely increased since Parkland. In the past month, he said his office has filed 19 school-related threat cases. It's like, I don't know what the uptick would be other than that we're charging teenagers with terrorism for throwing eggs. You know, it's like you're creating the uptick. My nephew was suspended one time for a couple of days because he was uh, playing tag with some friends and they had this, what they called kind of like a kill list. And it was really just who they were going to go after next. He was just a kid. It wasn't anything serious, <laughs> yeah. you know, but and they're like, we have it. a zero tolerance policy. So, you know, and, and I can see both sides of that, right? As a parent later on, if somebody had gotten shot, you'd have gone, well, what the fuck? You didn't see the signs. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, well, but kids model a lot of these things and don't necessarily mm-hmm. act on them or, you know. Oh yeah. Like those gun ads at the very beginning of, of Bowling for Columbine where the kids are, you know, makes real gun noises. And then the cops are like, what's that? And then in reality, <laughs> they would have shot those kids, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's like, well, I mean, to, to your point, LaDonna, you know, if, if, if killer Mike ever actually killed somebody, people would be like man why didn't we see that coming yeah yeah. (laughs) um so you know matt stone had a good interview with michael moore um unfortunately and and i again don't really blame him because this was just the prevailing narrative at the time he kind of did buy into the whole uh eric harris and dylan klebold were bullied narrative which turned out later through a series of both their personal journals and video diaries that they made which are really fucking creepy if you've ever seen these um it, it turns out that it wasn't the case at all. And later on, you know, Dave Cullen did a lot of extensive research uh, talking to, you know, people in the town for this book. And they actually had like a decent friend group. Eric Harris had a lot of, he was like fairly popular. He was a fucking psychopath. And when you read his diary, he didn't want to be a school shooter. He'd actually be uh, offended at the, at being lumped in with other uh, school shooters. He wanted to be Timothy McVeigh. He wanted to have more. <laughs> he, he, no seriously, variety. he wanted to have yeah. more death. Uh, he wanted to have a higher death count than Timothy McVeigh, who killed like fifty something fucking people in Oklahoma City. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I well, want to challenge the narrative. He, challenging the narrative, though, because so there's this idea that because we read their journals, um, you know, that we somehow understand them, or because they had some friends that that the bullying wasn't relevant. I can speak to this, you know, personally. I was bullied. I also had friends. I never, ever put 
a single sentence about it in any of my journals. I kept extensive diaries. Yeah. It was never no, in but, there. But Eric Harris, he's the kind of person that used to tort, like you would write about how he used to like torturing out. He was a literal psychopath. Like he wasn't, he may have been bullied, but it, there was no evidence to actually back up that he was bullied. He actually had, he was actually friends with a lot of the jocks they say. Um, right. But the reason that narrative came out is because it was easy because the trench coat mafia kids were bullied and they got lumped in with them, but they really weren't a part of that. Dylan, was somewhat bullied, but he was also super uh, lonely. Uh, and like he had like this girl that he liked that didn't like him. And he was really suicidal. And Eric, oh, I shot up some schools because of that, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Eric, being the psychopath that he is, saw Dylan as a guy to follow him. He, Eric was trying right. for uh, several years to recruit somebody to do this with him. And he finally found somebody who was enough of a follower in Dylan to be his lackey. But right. Eric Harris wanted to be. Like, he was such a psycho. He wanted to be bigger than Timothy McVeigh. That's why a lot of the pipe bombs, luckily, didn't go off. They had dozens of pipe bombs, like, planted around the school and their car. Uh, his his the, the bombs were the primary um, thing that was supposed to happen in Columbine, and the, he, they were just going to go through the halls and kind of pick off the stragglers. His whole idea was to blow up the fucking school and everyone in it. Mm-hmm. Right. So he wanted to be this... No, he wanted to be a notorious terrorist. Like he wanted to be super famous. Um, so the whole idea, I just, the, the whole narrative about those kids is totally wrong. Um, which is not to say that bullying isn't a massive issue, but it also stigmatizes people that are bullied, I think to yeah. make it seem like they're going to well, be these, the, the, the scene with the, Eric the South, was a psycho, literal psychopath. The scene with the guy from South park, he's, he's broadening it. I think more than just, um, what happened yeah, yeah. to those guys, he's projecting his own experience from growing up in that area. And he's talking about kind of the general sense that like, yeah, the suburbs suck. Everything's the same. <laughs> the values are very shallow of people. Um, there's not a lot of stuff to do besides, you know, superficial activities. Um, so I, I, I didn't feel like he was completely saying this is how this kid's life was or these two guys' yeah, lives yeah. was exactly. Uh, but I think he was saying that that was, that was a fact. Like the social pressures of being a teenager in suburbia are such that it, it can breed psychopaths. That's what I took I think it's it. really difficult after the fact to try to, you know, ascribe motivations to them. We, you know, we can't talk to them. We don't know. And, you know, in truth, people can sometimes react to something really small, you know, and that can be like the last straw. It could be, you know, a girl looked at them mm-hmm. sideways or, you know, whatever, um, you know, and sometimes they don't even realize the things that are wearing on them over time. You know, it could be one particularly persistent bully, that over and over again. I mean, that was the case for me. It was, it was one individual, but things were repeated so much. I still have them in my head today. You know what I mean? I still fight that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that stuff can be powerful. And and sometimes you don't even want to admit at the time, the degree to which you're being affected by those things. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I definitely had that in element, not so much in high school, but in elementary and middle school before I moved, I had two or three assholes who I, who I still, you know, I'm curious what they're doing today. And hopefully it's, you right. know, <laughs> being eaten Mine by uh, Africanized killer bees, but you know, Mine um, has a PhD and treats cancer. So oh, okay. <laughs> I guess he worked it out. Um, but no, I, and, and, and again, I don't mean to like, I just don't like that. The narrative to the whole entire shooting was so fucking off because I think it takes away from the fact that the real problem in our country is fucking guns. And the only thing that would have solved Columbine and all these other things is if you couldn't buy these guns in a fucking store, like, you know, it's so 
the re- that's the reason I, I mentioned that. But uh, um, can we identify psychopaths earlier on? I mean, <laughs> well, that, but the thing with certain psychopaths and Eric Harris supposedly was very good at hiding it. Like these people are very good at hiding it. But when you're not of use to them anymore, you can tell like they immediately become you're immediately dead to them. And uh, a, a, a large a, a big thing about psychopaths is that they say that they get bored very easily. So mm. like, and that even happened during Columbine, like Eric Harris at one point got bored and stopped, you know, shooting people. And that's probably why that there were less deaths, uh, deaths than, than there could have been because he just kind of got bored with it. All this death is boring me. Wow. Yeah. See, that's why you got to have one big bomb. Cause you don't, I mean that it's more ambition, but you don't have to stick around and keep doing it. You just get out and get out, you know? Uh, but you, but you watch the video. He's, 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 he's like going through the motions. He's not like excited or, yeah. or like angry or he's just... Yeah, like he, cold, emotionless. He, he wasn't that committed. He was. He didn't have the ambition. They still killed each other, though. Was didn't, wasn't that yeah. how they went well, out? Well, and they, Dylan didn't kill anybody really. They can't. They can't ascribe any deaths to Dylan. They think Eric did most of it, and Dylan's heart wasn't really in it when it actually started happening. Um, but he was just pot committed at that point, you know. Um, yeah. But did they so kill each other? It's just, they, they, I, I think they shot each other. Yeah, that was my understanding. Or or one shot the other, and then shot himself. It, it could have been that there's also, yeah, the theory that Eric shot Dylan and then shot himself because Dylan yeah, yeah. wouldn't shoot him, you know, whatever. It's usually um, the person that really wants to do it that doesn't care if they die. Um, yeah. I, I don't want to get off on a, on a side. I just want to get this in here at some point, and I, I don't know if we'll get to it any other way. This does tie into a couple other things we've talked about. And one of the things everyone's kind of we, – we have talked about how easy it is to get guns. We have talked about how modern media culture – breeds fear and makes things worse but um going back to michael moore in michigan and everyone sort of coming from michigan even if they ended up in columbine um the everyone forgets that the worst school massacre in u.s history happened in uh, a long time ago uh 1927 uh only a couple miles from where i grew up there was a guy who blew up a school and killed uh 45 people all at once um well, actually, not all at once. He, uh, when they were going through the wreckage, pulling little kids' limbs out, he drove his truck up and blew it up and killed ten more. So I guess it was like thirty-five, and then another nine or ten or so. Um, but again, it was one of these things where the guy was disgruntled and he wasn't bullied at all. He just didn't like paying taxes and having his taxes going to the school. Uh, he wasted all of his money, so his farm was in foreclosure. Oh he rigged up his whole farm to explode. Uh, when the police got there. So, you know, you think about the, the SWAT team going to this Nichols guy's house out in, in the middle of out in farm town in Michigan, you know, there's, there's precedent for that. <laughs> and, and it goes back quite a way, you know, quite a yeah. ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, nothing, nothing like that had ever happened. There was no mass media in 1927. This was a community that's never been larger than 3000 people, you know, and half the school just is blown up all at once. So, I don't know. It's I guess it goes back to from whence come cometh evil, you know, because yeah. they didn't have violent video games then. They didn't have assault weapons then. Um, but they'll cut people will take whatever they can. They had dynamite. The guy stockpiled dynamite. So I don't know. Anyway, Fucking I just want to throw that in there. Yeah. Um, I want to play. Actually, I have, I have the a little excerpt of Marilyn Manson's interview because I thought that was one of the the. the best uh interviews he did for the movie and Absolutely, the shit he yeah. says is just so profound and i just wanted to play it the for intellectual uh, goth rocker <laughs> <laughs> oh and the reason I, I i wanted to mention this actually because eric and dylan that was another thing they actually didn't even really like marilyn manson like <laughs> they were super into like german industrial like uh 
Who's the fu- a Ramstein oh, going, and like going str- going straight to the source, not the uh, yeah. Not the- <laughs> <laughs> so and like you know, like German death metal and shit like that. So they they didn't actually really even like Marilyn Manson, but he was just like he says in his interview, he's an easy target to point at and say, look, that's what's wrong with America. But um, well, yeah, and, wanna... and that was the other thing that pissed me off about this narrative really quick. It's just that, you know, I was alternative or that's what we called it. You know, when I was in high school, maybe not goth, but but yeah. you know, certainly different. And I felt like at the time, the danger was that then they were going to stereotype anyone like that and assume that we were all going to go on murderous rampages when I mean, most of and us they probably did assume that were. Yeah, they did. And and most of us were, I mean, some of the most sensitive, you know, emo, delicate kids out there. We were, you know, the least violent, you know, of anybody. But, it's always but the quiet then, types you got to watch out for. <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, you know, we got lumped in together. And, and by the way, I did wear a trench coat in high school. So, you know, <laughs> just saying. Could have been me. Uh, all right. Well, let me play the uh, Manson uh, thing and we'll talk about it. When I was a kid growing up, music was the escape. That's the only thing that uh, had no judgments. You know, you put on a record and it's not going to yell at you for dressing the way you do. It's going to make you feel better about it. Mm-hmm. Some will be so brash to ask if we believe that all who hear Manson tomorrow night will go out and commit violent acts. The answer is no. But does everybody who, who watches a Lexus ad go and buy a Lexus? No. But a few do. I definitely can see why they would pick me, because I think it's easy to throw my face on a TV because I'm, in the end, sort of a poster boy for fear, because I represent what everyone's afraid of, because I do and say what I want. If Marilyn Manson can walk into our town and promote hate, violence, suicide, death, drug use, and Columbine-like behavior, I can say, not without a fight, you can't. The two byproducts of of that whole tragedy were uh, violence and entertainment and gun control. And how perfect that that was the two um, things that we were going to talk about with the upcoming election. And also then we forgot about Monica Lewinsky. We forgot about the president was shooting bombs overseas. Yet I'm a bad guy because I've I've sang some rock and roll songs. And who's a bigger influence, the president or Marilyn Manson? Do you know? I'd like to think me, but I'm going to go with the president. Do you know that the day the Columbine happened, the United States dropped more bombs on Kosovo than any other time during that war? I do know that, and I think that that's really ironic. You know that that nobody said, well, maybe the president had an influence on this violent behavior. Uh, because that's that's not the way the media wants to take it and spin and turn it into fear. Because then you're watching television, you're watching the news, you're being pumped full of fear. There's floods, there's AIDS, there's murder. Cut to commercial, by the Acura, by the Colgate. If you have bad breath, they're not going to talk to you. If you got pimples, the girl's not going to fuck you. And it's just this, it's a campaign of fear and consumption. And that's what I think that it's all based on, is the whole idea that keep everyone afraid and they'll consume. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really right. as simple as it can be boiled down to. Right. If you were to talk directly to the, to the kids at Columbine or the people in that community, what, what, would, what would you say to them if they were here right now? I wouldn't say a single word to them. I would listen to what they have to say. And that's what no one did. Yeah, so um, that was uh, yeah, tremendous. Um, He's a little pat himself on the back at the end, but most of what he says is, is spot on for sure. 
Um, but you know, and, and he kind of makes a point that I didn't even really think about until now is that it, it, it almost can be boiled down to the fact that we're the most capitalistic society in, in the, in the, in the world too. Cause he says it is this cycle of fear and consumption and what, you know, <laughs> I mean, if you want to attribute one thing to us is like, we fucking love our capitalism and we love pushing that, that, you know, Buy this. Be afraid of this. Buy. Defend yourself. Buy that. You know. So hey, well, I always... I didn't buy my panic room out of fear. I bought it because I just liked <laughs> that movie with Jodie Foster that David Fincher did. It just seemed like a cool idea to be like, oh, I got a panic room. You know, it's cozy. <laughs> we always want to find the whys, right? And I'm big on this myself. You know, I always want to understand why. But you know, sometimes maybe there just isn't a why. Maybe somebody's just fucked up. I mean, I go to you know the song "I Don't Like Mondays" uh, by the Boomtown Rats. That was about a shooting spree. A 16 year old girl did um at a school in san diego and they asked her you know like why did you do this why do you go in there and you know shoot a bunch of people and it was eight kids or something and a cop she said i don't like mondays you know what i mean like we always look for this deep explanation but maybe it's just somebody had a fucking bad day and a gun happened to be nearby him and you know maybe that's the problem maybe if we make it a little less easy we can get rid of some of this well we talked a little bit about serial killers now that takes a lot more time and, and and thought and it's so much more extremely rare but these mass shootings that used to also be equally as rare are definitely much more common so when I think there is a, an epidemic of something like that, there you have to look more at the structure of, of why. Um, now, definitely there is, a, you know, people can get guns more easily in the age of the Internet, just like so can get anything more easily in the age of the Internet. Um, you know, and, and you got to get rid of some of those. You know, you have to. I like what Chris Rock said, though. You know, maybe if you just make the bullets more expensive, you really think <laughs> about it. Every bullet is $5,000. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you have to pay five grand, you're going to think about it. He does almost the same I'll bit, but with about stabbing people in his yeah. last bit. And I was like, oh, Chris Rock's recycling his material. <laughs> uh, oh, well, whatever. I love him. I don't care what he says. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, that's funny. Um, you know, uh, so they also have this, you know, he has another segment about the constant fear peddled by the news media where it's all like the fake, you know. And actually, John Oliver, for all the shit I'll say about him, and I think he's a total fucking, you know, corporate stooge, uh, he does these really good little montages sometimes, or at least when I used to watch a show where he'd show you all the uh, all these news clips of all these places being like, you know, uh, is your dog blind to kill you? More at 10. You know, are, <laughs> can escalators uh, suck you up, <laughs> you know, suck you in and, and mangle you, you know, more, more, you know, 11. Um, <laughs> so and and you know he just uh, Michael Moore in the movie juxtaposes that with the uh, the colored alert system that the Bush administration rolled out after nine eleven the terror alert system, which uh, it, it's funny but it's the most like elementary school version of that. It's like there's no cleverness to it anymore because people were just so afraid after nine eleven that they were able to just say be afraid today, be more afraid today. Like it, you know, we're on an orange. Li- I mean, that's the culmination of years of propaganda, decades of propaganda to make you fearful. Uh, and I think that's kind of the, just the ultimate culmination of that was the, 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 you know, the colored alert system that the Bush administration. Well, and, and it kind of worked. I mean, they, they needed to do that for at least a couple of years to get us into some of the big wars and then they got rid of it, but we're still in those wars. So I think they just realized it wasn't necessary, you know, to, to manufacture consent for war. They only needed to do that for, you know, just a couple of years after 9-11. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it was it was obviously absurd. Uh, Bush was obviously an idiot, not as much as he was in real life. Of course, you know, born from a wealthy Connecticut family, but um, you know, he, he talked he with was, a Texas accent. Uh, yeah, yeah, but he was really good at whipping up that fear. You know, I don't know if you remember the the, the RNC convention in two thousand four, but somebody gobbled together every time the word terrorist or terrorism was said, and it's like it's like uh, Cheney doesn't really get up there, but it's like. Um, What's the the mayor guy? America's mayor. What was his name? Giuliani. Giuliani and Bush oh, and and then great. Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's just like terrorism, 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 terrorism. It's just like it goes for four minutes. <laughs> That's all they fucking did. That's all they cared about was that word. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, you know the next segment. Uh, this guy actually might be my least favorite uh, person in the movie. Uh, and and ironically, you know, the movie makes a lot of the right wingers look like idiots. But this this kind of liberal uh, ex cops producer he talks to is just the epitome of everything that I <laughs> loathe about you know centrists that we have, that we're fighting on a daily basis. <laughs> um, this guy was a producer of cops, and he's like, well, you know, you look up liberal in a dictionary, and my picture's in there. Um, but he defends the show cops and he's like, Oh, I don't think we portray black and brown people as more of a threat. Th- that, that the whole concept of that show is incredibly exploitative. And the whole point of that show is that it preys on white men's fear of black men. Like that's all that show exists for. I wish that Moore would have challenged him more and maybe he didn't have the data at the time, but I, I would have loved for him, you know, walking into that to say, yeah, but of every episode, you know, 29 or 30 minutes is spent on people of color. You know what I mean? I would have sure, loved yeah. him to push back like that. Uh, well, the one thing he did say to him was that, you know, maybe maybe corporate cops would be a better show. And he goes like, well, I don't think anyone would watch that. I, I don't know about you. I'd watch the shit out of corporate cops if they actually well, were. Well, no, he know. also said that, that there weren't any cops that would go after corporate That's criminals. What, so. that, was true. That, he, that was true what he said. They, they wouldn't actually. Yeah. Well, he also said the corporate guys don't ever run either. You know, they're always like they, they, they set up a time and a date to. to turn themselves in. You know, they don't. They don't bust down their door and make them jump out of the 40th floor of Wall Street. If we can get an executive to take a shirt off, maybe we would, you know, use that yeah. in an episode of Cops. That was just ridiculous, yeah. That was funny. Um, you know, and it's just funny because there's, you know, again, to my whole point of, like, it's the fucking guns as the problem, you know, and there's obviously a lot of little problems, but I mean, I think the major problem that we have and the major reason that we have so many more gun deaths in every other country in the world is the fucking guns. He he goes and highlights that Canadian city that's literally across the river from Detroit. Like Windsor. some guy went there, Windsor, some guy went there just to go, you know, to some carnival there. It was like clearly like, you know, like a 20 minute drive and they have nearly no murders in that town. And And it's just like, Across from presumably one of the high the cities with the highest murder rates in the country, that's yeah, up and there. Our arson's worse than anything, but yeah, Detroit's. I came to a different conclusion, though. I actually came to the conclusion that it's not about the guns. For me, the more powerful part of the narrative was really about about inequality and about taking care of one another and healthcare and all of those things. And that, well, yeah, that you know, perhaps because Canada Canada has just as many guns as we do. But, you know, they actually take care of one another. And so you don't see the things. And, and maybe, you know, the societal stressors and, and all of that here and the, you know, well, I got mine mentality and, you yeah. know, it's you versus me, you know, that we're constantly um, hearing, you know, maybe that's a part of it. And if we could just, you know, advance a little bit and and, you know, get people out of some of the stressful situations they're in, you know. I, for me, it wasn't even about the guns because, you know, to, to the point about, you know, it was, they were trying to use bombs. They could have used anything, but, but 
let's get back to the why. Why are these things happening? Well, yeah, I th- I, yeah. I mean, I, certainly the, all that other stuff plays into it too. Obviously, the the income inequality and the just general uh, American ideal and American attitude that we're all kind of like instilled with from birth, which is just fuck everybody well, else. You know? you know, if it was just income inequality, then why are all these mass shootings not being done by? black families <laughs> you know it's always these white guys that feel well, like it's a combo i think it's definitely enough. a combo uh, yeah it's, it's certainly it's, the guns and that and you know the violence <clears throat> were peddled with um so <laughs> you know it was just, I, the the stuff i i don't know what the fuck is wrong with canadian people i cannot imagine living in a house and not locking my door like i don't care if there's no crime in your they fucking do that in wisconsin they leave their keys in their cars what the here. fuck I shit you not. So I came here and I was like, what are I mean, you it's doing? Just I'm from New York, <laughs> but that's so fucking weird to me. Well, I mean, that is that more rural area or suburban or urban that they do that? Everywhere here. Everywhere. I mean, yeah. yeah. I, well, yeah, it's Wisconsin. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. Um, we trust you, you but we're going to shoot you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Go ahead and try, yeah. to, try to snatch my truck. <laughs> You know, I was talking about like the media and the callousness and how they're always just ratings driven. One of the the most uh, just blatant examples of that, he shows the shot of this news reporter reporting from outside the uh, the shooting of the where the where the six year old accidentally killed the little girl, and the guy was very somber. You know, uh, describing the story, and then you know more more details at six. And then immediately, like when he stopped, his face totally changed, and he was just like this you know, kind of chauvinistic dickhead joking around with all these people and being like, Hey, is my hair, uh, I need some hairspray to it. Like it, it was just like, he, he, he so clearly was not affected by the thing he was reporting on, which is this horrific no. fucking and, and tragedy. Then he even turns it around and says, you know, I feel bad for those kind of anchors that just <laughs> run from tragedy to yeah. tragedy. And it's, it's like, how do like, you, bro, what are you fucking doing right now? See <laughs> yeah. who you are. I mean, no, I know everyone doesn't see the irony of themselves sometimes, but it's like, so I hope he that. watched that and just had like a, how am I not myself moment? Like <laughs> I heart Huckabees where he just curled up into a ball and stopped functioning for a while after seeing that. And you know, that, that, that whole story about the six year old uh, who accidentally killed a little girl was because of, you know, some right wing bullshit policy. The mother, uh, wasn't ever home because she had to take a fucking bus 80 miles round trip to go work at Dick Clark's fucking rockin' restaurant or whatever it was mm. in, like, the wealthy right. white suburbs. Music is bullshit. the soundtrack of our lives. Yeah. I don't know if <laughs> well, you ever watched... the welfare-to-work programs. It's like... Yeah, yeah. Uh, just a little aside about the DVD commentary. There is a uh, commentary track on the, uh, the original DVD version, and it's all of his interns, Michael Moore's interns, and they're kind of dicks about making fun of some of the dumb people. But one of their best critiques was the that slogan at Dick Clark's uh, whatever shitty cafe in the mall. Music is the soundtrack of our Rocket. lives. They're like, what else could be the soundtrack of your life besides music? <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, that was that was on point, guys. That's super funny. Yeah, I, I, it didn't even occur to me. But yeah, that's the stupidest quote. <laughs> yeah. It's like that Bush quote about how uh, nation, uh, well, fuck, what was it? Children are where our nation takes hope, where wings take dream. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah, you called with some 80s lyrics. <laughs> oh, love lift us some up where we belong or something. Yeah. 
Um, and it's just, you know, again, she's a person. She worked two jobs and couldn't afford rent and, like, was was being evicted. And she the reason the kid got the guns because they had to go, you know, stay with her cousin who had, like, guns lying around, I guess, and the kid took it to school one day. But it's just, like, how can you fucking work two jobs? And, you know, we'll talk about this on the actual podcast later this week, but... In that income inequality town hall, uh, that that guy Derek brought up a really crazy stat that I never even heard. Forty four percent of homeless people work. Forty four percent of homeless people have fucking jobs. Like, mm-hmm. what kind of a country do we fucking live in that you can well, have a job? We, we live in a country like, where the people who are who are trying to build more housing want more luxury housing to solve the, the affordable housing crisis. You know, they want to apply the supply and demand idea of of market rate housing. And, you know, if you live in a city where you need service workers still, people are only getting paid 10, 12 bucks an hour. But the average rent is uh, over twelve hundred dollars a month. You're paying 60, 70 percent of your income to housing. So for somebody who can't afford to move to where the jobs are, they get stuck riding a bus for, you know, three hours a day to go work somewhere, getting paid. Mm-hmm. At the time, they, were, they, they said in the film, um, they were making like five fifteen an hour. That's what minimum wage was at the time. They can't afford to even move to where that job is. They're so poor, they can't even move. So they're stuck riding that bus all that way. And that's, that's why this mother wasn't around for so much of the time to take care of her kid and make sure that he didn't have to go stay somewhere else and ended up finding this uh, this loaded gun and took it to school. Well, and I can speak to how that happens because, you know, having gone through some difficult times myself, you know, several years back when, um, you know, when you're making a low wage or, you know, one member of the family's working, whatever it is, you know, you're so close to one, one disaster, one whatever. So, you know, in the case of my significant other, he was laid off and losing a paycheck even for a couple of weeks meant that we were late on our rent, which then led to an eviction. You know what I mean? And it sort of, it adds on from there and it can be something really small. That was another thing they talked about in that uh, town hall was like something like 60% of people in this country can't afford it. If someone close to them dies, can't afford the money to, to fly out to the funeral, whatever, can't afford a $400 car repair. This is how close to the edge we are. So yeah, it's very common that, that homeless people, in fact, it's, you know, I think it's probably even higher numbers now um, work and still can't get by. And it's just amazing to me, you know, that the, the general rule of thumb is people always say, well, uh, you should uh, only spend a third of what you make a, a month on rent. Right. Yeah. That's the, right. that's the only so, which affordable is, income. Right. So and, you know, the average rent for a two bedroom, I think, in America is like twelve hundred dollars a month. Uh, you know, it, it, you'd have to make an absurd amount of money to actually, you'd have to make like $50,000 a year to only spend a third of your income on rent. And the 50% of the country makes under $30,000 a year. So it's mm-hmm. like, how the fuck can anyone even afford to live in America? It's just, well, they we're can't. all like, they you know, can't. and that's, that's the whole, the whole, why the whole idea of supply and demand and housing is a lie. There's six empty homes for every homeless person. Right. right. And they'll say, no. well, the home, the home, empty homes are in places no one wants to live. Well, it, it's, you know, if the problem... If you're homeless, you would live anywhere with a home, I'm right, sure. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, <laughs> like, but the, the people who want to define affordable housing as anything that's 10% below market rate. Well, what the fuck is a market rate? Market rate is just the maximum possible they can get from whoever will agree to pay that much. That I mean, it's a complete wash. And it's, it's again, it's centrist neoliberals who are pushing this, this market, this capitalist market housing thing, and they pretend it's all about supply and demand, and it's not. 
I mean, well, Republicans just define being uh, middle class as making four hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Right. So, so like, you know, shit. So yeah, again, you have liberals that are following that extremist right wing view of of punishing the poor for being poor. Uh, right. They've embraced it, uh, Reaganomics, the whole idea of trickle-down economics, and they've applied it to housing, where they say, well, uh, developers won't make enough money to bother building anything unless we give them tax breaks to go build luxury condo units that will then in 30 years be affordable. I guarantee the only time those units will be affordable is within five years of when the building gets torn down. Yeah. There's my rant, sorry. <laughs> well, and a lot of things are being sold to people from foreign countries, so that's another piece of it. Oh, I yeah, think that, absolutely. You know, when we look at this, we Developers, have to look at, yeah, yeah there are, you know, rules in deals. Hawaii that, um, you know, with land being sold, that, you know, a certain percentage of it has to be sold to natives, and I think we may need to get to something like that in this country as well, mm-hmm. or or we're going to be all priced out of every market. Well, soon. Mark Zuckerberg owns, like, half of fucking Hawaii now, so... <laughs> Do you hear that story about how he has like 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 a hundred or thousand acres and he was like some indigenous people's land uh, was infringing on his and he like tried uh, to push yeah, them out I mean, like he's gonna I mean, need it, it when we all come after him with our pitchforks. <laughs> oh man, I think if you even are on Facebook, oh. you deserve to have completely free housing just for the abuse that of being on Facebook <laughs> in the first place. True. I mean, oh, oh God, talk just about a the, digital yeah, prison. The, yeah, no, it seriously is I. I loathe it um so uh, dick clark seems super concerned uh with all the workers that he's exploiting when michael moore was talking to him <laughs> um I, yeah you know just fuck that guy i mean i don't really have anything much more to say about dick clark i <laughs> yeah. have some long I mean, he's just a, he's a, he his first name is very apropos that's you know, even that's all I really even scumbag of the earth phil knight was able to sit down with michael moore and have a conversation you know dick clark's yeah. just like ah Close, Close the van door. Well, and it goes back to if you can't afford to pay your people a living wage, you can't afford to be in bad business. So, yeah, F- of FDR course, said that, yeah. he just yeah. chooses not to because he makes a lot more money. You know, yeah, I, I'm sure he thought um, of himself as a benevolent guy for all these, you know, welfare to work people he was taking in, knowing that they were going to be subpar labor. Um, because conservatives truly believe that whole bullshit ideal of like, well, you know, poor people just don't want to work and we have to force them to work because no people would fucking love like living wage jobs. Nobody chooses Mm -hmm. to not work and be poor. Like that's a fucking myth. That's a right wing think tank myth. Like nobody chooses that life. It's just that this fucking fucked up country where we value, you know, capital over everything else. We've created a system where, uh, it uh, companies are incentivized to eliminate jobs and extract as much profit as possible from each one of their workers. So I think a lot of Republicans just don't understand just how hard it is to get out of poverty. I mean, so, you know, a lot of the, the people that I, you know, when I was a Republican and, and others, you know, that I know now, um, you know, would reject the notion that they had it any easier than anyone else because they feel like, oh, well, maybe their their parents were poor, you know, when they were growing up or whatever. And it's like even just being white, that alone, you know what I mean, is, sure. is a privilege. And, and a lot of them just won't acknowledge that because it's all about bootstrap for them. Mm-hmm. And they they refuse to understand that, you know, when they're um, you know, taught to speak a certain way that is socially acceptable, that that's an advantage when they're allowed to go to certain schools. I mean, my high school, as opposed to some of the others in the same city I grew up in, got, you know, more more college recruiters came to it because that's just, you know, it's how it was. Well, I mean, to, to be fair, look how hard it is to, to be born into a wealthy family. 
I mean, just that takes work. That takes real work. I mean, you got to go. We don't understand the pressures. A lot of karma. Donald Trump, you know, experienced (laughs) growing up with, you know, small loans of $20 million or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I the movie ends with the most the most inspiring kind of segment in the movie. And the kind of the one that affected me the most was the. uh taking the Columbine kids to, to the Kmart headquarters um, to <laughs> embarrass Kmart into actually doing something. And it, it's kind of amazing that they actually agreed to stop selling ammo. Like, like, so it, it's, it's just, to me, it's like that we should be doing this all the time. We should just be totally embarrassing corporations and mm-hmm. making their PR people squirm and bringing as much news media as possible, because the only way you actually get, uh, any kind of effective change done is when you make companies look bad. Um, it's very true. Yeah. And, and that kind of negative reinforcement that you use on corporations is definitely warranted. Um, the dark side of that, of course, is when people take those tactics, tactics and use them on each other and end up sabotaging sure. their own momentum, their own movement. Um, the, the risk of going after corporations in such a way, too, is they'll hire people private investigators to dig into your personal life to try to honey tra- honey trap you or, or uh, discredit you personally. So really the um, you can't do it alone, you know, unless you have the prestige of like someone like Michael Moore who can get all the other media people to show up and do that. Uh, we as sort of the you know little people have to be, uh, we have to rely on each other a lot more, I think, uh, to, to yeah. be successful on that level. Yeah. So, and you know, a great example of, of that, that, ideal though of like embarrassing corporations into doing the right thing is you know i I, i've uh said on the podcast before i'm i'm a i'm like a big wrestling fan so they um recently the wwe announced that they were going to do the first ever uh women's battle royal at wrestlemania this year right and they named it uh the fabulous moolah uh women's battle royal she was this wrestler back in the 70s uh and and the whole thing is like they're on this big women's empowerment kick and they're using it for a lot of p- good PR. Uh, but it turns out, uh, that the fabulous moolah used to, uh, pimp out, uh, young female wrestlers that would come to mm. work for the WWF back then. No she, would, shake, she would duck. force them. Yeah. Yeah. She would force <laughs> them to like stay with her. She would, you know, she would take a percentage of their paydays. She would literally send them to go, you know, service other, you know, male clients. So people knew about the story and they flipped a fucking shit. And like one of the first times I've actually seen a corporation come out and be like, yeah, guys, we're sorry. This, this was not a good idea. We're going to change the name. Like, <laughs> I don't know why we did that. Like they were very apologetic and it's like only because of the social media shaming, do they actually do the right thing? Like yeah. it, it's yeah. just, well, and I think they're starting to hire people who do ethical PR for corporations. I have an ex who, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, there, there is a it's movement true, though, towards no, that. It's funny, but it's Sorry, true. Sorry, that sounded like an oxymoron. <laughs> I know, right? No, I think, I think there are some people at the top that are, are trying to come up with a way to become a competitive, sustainable business and still be ethical. I don't want to call that necessarily ethical capitalism because 
I don't well, think it's not for every, the right reasons. It's because they'll get called out on it well, if they don't. I mean, but. I, I think there's that. But there are also a lot of people who do PR who are very selective about their clients because they don't want to whitewash some terrible unethical practice. They want to actually boost up corporations that are already doing the right thing in the first place. There is a movement for, they call it conscious capitalism, you know, that's growing. Yeah. It started yeah. in California. It's moving elsewhere. And part of it is because they know it's a marketing strategy for millennials that are, you know, more socially conscious. So yeah. it really does go to dollars and cents at the end of the day. But yeah. And it's a bit of an it. oxymoron. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, see, that's the thing is I think there's the people that really embrace capitalism. They don't understand what it is. They conflate all commerce as being capitalism. And it's definitely not that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's true. Most of our economy is still capitalist. Yeah, it's true. But uh, I think there's definitely ways you can have an industry or have a business that uh, pays people equitably and uh, doesn't, you know, grossly enrich the people who are at the top. You know, there are workers collectives, even though there's not a lot in this country. It's a model that does work. Um, That's what we need to move towards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's I, I've seen a little bit of a change and definitely the shaming has made a lot of these companies preemptively try to, you know, uh, not make these huge blunders in the first place. Um, but yeah, there's still a lot of really bad ones like finding out after the Parkland massacre that Kroger, Kroger sells guns was a kind of a weird one to me. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like, like, what? <laughs> Nobody would have known you did it until you said so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I just, I really, that, that was kind of amazing that they actually managed to, you know, get Kmart to stop selling ammo in, in stores, which is even more than they asked for. Uh, they asked just that they stop what? selling nine millimeter rounds and the PR people actually went back and talked to them and they decided probably because they weren't, you know, as big of a seller for them as, as they were going to be in terms of a PR nightmare. But for whatever reason, you know, shaming them actually worked and they stopped selling ammo. So. And it's worked recently, too, um, with the kids from from Parkland. Um, they have actually, you know, gotten some stores, some other stores to um, to move away yeah, from Dick's, selling guns or certain kinds. Yeah, Dick's was right? one. Yeah. A lot of major retailers. So Macy's. It, it is working. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, not Macy's, but. <laughs> Toys R Us, you know. Forever 21 lifted <laughs> their age of selling Toys guns to 21. Stuff. Who knows? Toys R Us is going out of business, period. Toys, Toys R Us is going to start selling. Guess what, kids? We're going to take all those guns. Millennials killed <laughs> Toys R Us, guys. It's okay. Even though we were the, even though we were That's like right. always trying to support them every day of our lives when we were kids oh, by being like, yeah. hey, take we're, us to Toys R Us. Take us to Toys R Us. Trying to save our, the own, our own zeitgeist of childhood. Anyway, okay. <laughs> um, so that was that. I, I really like that segment. And then the only segment after that was uh, the Charlton Heston interview, which uh, went about as well as you'd expect it to. Um, yeah, I, my, my, I didn't really write too many notes. All I wrote was, uh, Charlton Heston is a dried up turd because that's pretty much yeah. my <laughs> well, the thing, feelings watching he, that interview. You feel like he's kind of doing his shtick when he's sitting down and as soon oh, as course, he stands yeah. up, you see what a sad, frail, you know, just, and he shuffles away and you just wonder like, did he fill his diaper before or during that interview? <laughs> because, you know, he just looks. I at, just wondered watching it, how much of it is actually what he believes and how much of it is just bullshit selling out that, you know, the NRA, NRA needed PR. a spokesperson. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can and tell. so he, he's, he's, he's sold out. He's an actor. He's an old actor. Even at the time he was old, he's rehearsing his lines. And the minute that he has to think for himself, he just shuts down. He doesn't know how to process he puts his foot stuff. in his mouth. 
Yeah, and he's just like, oh, the problem with the civil rights movement. And I guess the, you know, the d- diversity was a thing. It's like, he's never had to think about this shit in his life. He probably doesn't even realize how tone deaf that was. I mean, that's, no, of that's how insulated they are. <laughs> yeah. And Michael yeah. Moore was like, divers- you're saying diversity was the problem in America? Like, what <laughs> <laughs> the fuck? Yeah, well, oh, you know, God. I mean, there's, there's clearly a lot of very rich people who are very tone deaf and as soon as they get confronted with the reality you know i mean look at all the times hillary clinton would be confronted by a young black woman that would call her on her bullshit and she would just be like oh i don't Why need to run, you for, run something. for something you know or like, get her out of here so we can go back to talking about the real issues you know and it's <laughs> yeah. that's the real her that's that was the real charlton heston so i didn't feel like he got attacked i felt like mike asked him a few questions that were definitely loaded but that's the whole point he that's, also came back the next the day so charlton heston could have looked up who michael moore is it's not like he could you know that's on charlton heston for not you know he he literally said come back tomorrow and he came back and interviewed him so if he was you know if he didn't want to spar with a left-wing documentarian he could have looked him up the you know when mm-hmm. he agreed to do an interview well, that's all said, i was thinking when i was watching it is I, I was seeing him walk away and i was thinking he's going to choose somebody's ass out for them not <laughs> looking into this and figuring out who well, i mean i mean he did yeah. schedule the appointment himself he's got no <laughs> one to blame yeah he's got no one to blame but he still probably did himself blame out. his yeah. cook or something <laughs> he went and yelled at a mirror why don't why you, you let me do that yeah <laughs> I couldn't tell if that was Michael Moore's producer or Charlton Heston's like assistant that he walks past as oh, the There's camera that woman that spins looks super... around who's just like <laughs> petrified. Like, uh, I'm pretty sure that somebody. Either way, I felt bad for her. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever she worked yeah, I for. Did. <laughs> oh my god, that was so funny. Mm. Um, so it yeah. was powerful though when he just left the picture there. Like, look. Oh, that was so powerful. You yeah. are going. To have to deal with this one way or another. And, yeah. yeah. Well, and he even said he didn't know what, who the kid was, you know, and it's right. like he didn't want to know who the kid was. It was a deliberate no. choice to never think about the victims of gun violence. And that's that's the overarching thing. It's like the people that want these guns out there forever, they want it for themselves. They don't care about who gets harmed. They don't care about the byproduct of gun violence. Because well, it's their God-given right, which makes sense, I guess, because God wrote the Constitution. But that, that, yeah, well, they had. Like, a, I don't understand had, that, you know, that phrase. How do you think Noah got all the animals on on the ark? He had an AR-15. <laughs> let's he, go. He just racked that shotgun. He was like, "All right, elephants, let's go." Uh, hey, yeah, platypuses. Where the fuck do you think you're going? Let's go. I'm on the ark. You know, like what? carnivores. You got 40 days of being a vegetarian. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, nobody eat each other. Um, it's just, it's just ridiculous, but, uh, you know, uh, so I, th- I think that was one of the more effective things is that he showed, that was one of the few moments of punching up when he showed like the, how hypocritical and, and small the people in power at the NRA are and the people that, that, you know, that facilitate this kind of bullshit propaganda that, that leads to us being the country with by far the most gun deaths in the entire world. Um, so you know, I I I, I th- he he bookended it with really good stuff. Mm-hmm. You know whether or not some of the stuff in the middle was questionable. I think the the majority of it was you know was worthwhile. Um, so despite all of my criticisms of it, I I did actually I don't want to say enjoy it. I don't know if you can enjoy something like this, <laughs> it's, but it's, you know it's a tough watch. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I I did appreciate you know. Uh, a lot of what he said and, and certainly the the underlying, um, you know, conclusions about, you know, guns being problematic and, you know, inequality and all of those things I appreciated. Like I said, I just felt like 
there was a way that he could have done it without some of the cheap tactics that he resorts to again and again. And, mm. and I hope that he grows as a filmmaker. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's I a big guy. His so later stuff. Well, yeah. <laughs> he, yes, he has. Uh, he has literally grown as a filmmaker. In yeah, the yeah. Years. He still has weird, like a weird boyish charm to him, even though he's like probably pushing he sixty does. now too. But you know, again, I'm going to defend. Um, you know, from from someone who took uh, documentary ethics and filmmaking, there's a fine line there, probably. But I, I feel like between deception and manipulation versus just you know kind of juxtaposing different scenes that uh, tonally or in the spirit of, of what was said represent certain things, even if it wasn't exactly the words that someone said on that exact day following the previous scene, you know, overall, I think it does a good job. And I, and I, in, in, in my attempt to be fair, definitely read up on a lot of the critiques of the film today to, to vet some of that stuff. Um, so yeah, I think it, it definitely deserved the, the Oscar for that year. Um, I think when he spoke out against Bush and got booed at the Oscars, that people probably <laughs> regretted that for a while. But then nowadays, as much as liberals have tried to rehabilitate Bush, as far as, you know... George uh, Bush would get uh, cheered at the Oscars uh, Oh yeah. this year. Well, he paints pretty pictures now and doesn't remember the wars he started. He's so. funny. He's so funny when he goes on Ellen. He's so sweet. Yeah, and Michelle Obama you hugs you. You're, you're all set, you know? He, he fiddles with a poncho like an idiot. Like he's so he's so endearing now, you know. <laughs> oh. but to, to be fair, that was the funniest thing from the inauguration. Him trying to get the fucking poncho on. <laughs> Classic Bush. See, that's my point: is you don't have to make him look like an idiot. He does it all himself. Yeah. So. I, I felt like the film made him look like a tyrant. All those scenes where he's like, "We gotta crush oh, the course. evil. We gotta crush the ter-. like." I I get you know that was that's why scary I asked Congress to fund all my requests. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so I I never actually seen him be that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I overall still a great film. It had been a while since I watched it. I think we all kind of re uh, reviewed it uh, the last couple of days to so it be fresh in our minds and. And I do still find it very relevant today. Well, yeah, with a lot of things uh, yeah. more than ever. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people thought it was an anomaly, you know, or they, or they thought like, oh, well, 420, Hopes, that was yeah. in a, the anniversary of Waco and Ruby Ridge. And it's this, you know, Oklahoma City bombing. Like it was just that day had something to do with it. And then we realized it was so much more. <clears throat> it's it's crazy that that was the anniversary of uh, Ruby Ridge and Waco because, you know, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing was done intentionally on that day, but just mm-hmm. it's such a fucking weird day, like, you know, such an infamous, horrible day for right wing. And it's also Hitler's birthday. So it's like well, it's the worst the fucking day we day. blaze up the fuck boot up the yeah, bomb. To forget about all the fucking horrible yeah. shit that happens on that day. In I guarantee all those guys did not smoke weed on the day they killed everyone. No, if they did, I think the world would be a much more peaceful place. Mm-hmm. We'd have a much no, they'd have been less going violent to the country. Stop and shop getting uh, Doritos and Funyuns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, as we know, Kroger sells guns, so maybe stop and shops in rural <laughs> states sell guns too. Do those onion so rings require a background check? Nah. <laughs> so what? Uh, what? What would you rate the film out of five? Out of five hammer and sickles, how many uh, hammer and sickles do you give it? Uh, uh, four and a half. Yeah, I think its relevance is, is important, but in in style and craft, it's it's. Um, Almost perfect for a documentary as far as being entertaining, uh, emotionally resonant, uh, resonant, and uh, just flows really well. Um, I will say my least favorite thing about Michael Moore is Michael Moore. <laughs> um, so I don't <laughs> want to, you know, he does, he puts. I don't. I'm not opposed to, to directors putting themselves into the film, uh, and but he it, he does it in such a way that it's just kind of like 
you want him to take a he little bit. He tries to be funny sometimes. Yeah, I don't mind that. It's like when he puts his arm around somebody who's crying and just you can tell that they're not comfortable with it. You know, yeah. like physically not comfortable. Yeah, I felt that too. Moment, yeah. Uh, yeah, I felt that too. I was wondering if I was just reading too much into to it. To me, to me, those are the things that feel manufactured, not the editing. Yeah. But um, you know, sure. again, it, who you can't, it's hard to judge something when you're not there. You don't really feel what's happening. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I'll still give it four out of uh, four point five hammers, and so I guess it's uh, 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 four, five hammers and four sickles, and that gets you to four and a half. There. <laughs> right. So Ladonna, um, I'm going to give it three, um, and and for two reasons. I mean, the things that I talked about earlier, you know, just just his style and you know the way of putting information together. But the other component of it is I don't think it necessarily needed to take 10 or 15 years for us to get to the truth of, you know, that that the narrative, the the, the prevailing narrative of the time wasn't true. I think a, a better documentarian could have done the research when he made this film yeah. and put to rest a lot of those things. And he it just he was going along with, you know, um Again, the the story of the time, and I think had he dug a little bit deeper, like some of the authors and others did did mm-hmm. after that, um, it might have been a different film. So yeah. Well, and, and uh, in fairness, a lot of that stuff didn't come out because uh, a, a real investigation or a real judicial inquiry uh, does take years, and interviewing hundreds of people, and and just the logistics of interviewing hundreds of people. Um, you know, uh, a lot of that stuff was just, like you said, simply not known for a long time afterwards because of the time it takes to learn the truth. Uh, and yeah. Anthony, the, the article you sent me, um, uh, we were, the interviews, the guy that did the book, uh, he, he's there in that article, he quotes somebody or somebody's quoted and they're talking about how pervasive, um, group thought is in, in a tragic event. Uh, once an narrative gets out there, people are reluctant to want to think otherwise, at least consciously. But then they also sort of contradict that and say that memories often fade or get more distorted as time passes, um, especially with a really traumatic event where, where people remember things a certain way. And then, you know, they're convinced that they've always thought that. And then they talk to someone else who thought the same thing early on. And now they have totally different memories of it, especially if it's a traumatic event. The more they go back and recall it, the more that memory changes over time. So I, I think, you know. You're right, LaDonna, that a, a better filmmaker who was focused more on getting to the truth of those things could have spent 15 years making a documentary about just the the, the moment to moment of what happened there. Um, the thing I do like that he does is try to connect those dots that were, have been so hard for us to connect as a country uh, about why we are so violent and why we keep shooting each other to death so often. Yeah. Yeah, so I uh, I would give the movie four uh, hammer and sickles out of five. Uh, just I, the only reason I would deduct a star or a hammer and sickle um, is because I, I, I do I, it, it does bother me slightly that the uh, that he he did kind of just go along with the Columbine narrative from the time. But um, I, I think it's an excellent film overall. I think it it, it it's sloppy at, in, in terms of its narrative at times, which is why I also deduct a little bit from it. But I think it's trying to tell a very big um, – the thesis of the movie is a lot bigger than I think he maybe initially intended for it to be because he really yeah. ended up trying to solve why we're the way we are, why we're violent, you know, which is a fucking – that's – you know, you could do a 10-hour miniseries and not even touch on all the reasons and all the right. intricacies so of that. Many. 
So yeah. I think for I think it's it's commendable for that reason that he he made a movie as as good as I think it was. Um, so I would give it four stars. But highly recommend anyone that uh, wants to know more about Columbine and wants like an actual story about what happened and the events surrounding the day and and of the individuals involved. Uh, read Columbine anyone by who Dave Cullen. Might have been uh, boycotting Michael Moore. <laughs> Go ahead and check out the film. Yeah. <laughs> it's worthwhile. If you love the um, movie, check out the book. Yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, the, Columbine by Dave Cullen. I read that a few years back. It's a great book. Uh, really g- gives you an understanding of, of the mindset of Eric Harris specifically because they had a lot of – he did a lot of – you know, he, they had his journals and the tapes, and he also talked a lot with his family members, his father, who's, you know – uh, an interesting individual, uh, fucked up in, in a lot of ways, but you know, who wouldn't be, I guess. Um, and yeah, I, I, so I'd highly recommend that, uh, to anybody who wants to know more about that. Um, I just want to say I was consistent. I kept my promise. I didn't put a dollar into Michael Moore's pocket for this. <laughs> <laughs> I just sent to me. So yeah, still didn't give that guy any money. <laughs> uh, well, maybe it's time to move uh, left a little bit further. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. I'll I'm think gonna, about we're, it. we're just going to become a Michael Moore uh, documentary review podcast now because it gets LaDonna <laughs> on edge. So I think that's, that's what we got. <laughs> No, you know, his some of his later I Sicko is a great movie uh as is Where to Invade. Next. I think Where to Invade Next would be a really good thing to do for the podcast cuz it's a mm-hmm. lot of uh, it's basically it, explaining why socialism is way better. I think his best work, Capital, Capitalism yeah. Love Story. And he even said, I'm not going to make another with, film yeah. unless people fucking do something about this shit finally. And then sure enough, <laughs> like a year later Occupy Wall Street happened and he was like, "Oh, People finally, <laughs> I mean, he, he amazingly, he didn't only credit himself this time, um, but uh, he he definitely was like, I'm done doing this, guys, because you're not listening, you know, to, to what's going on out there. So I understand that. I was saying earlier today, I'm going to stop caring. It's just too fucking exhausting. <laughs> so I get it. Yeah. Well, yeah. and where to invade next is all about uh, like all these awesome. So it, the, the title is slightly misleading. He's saying we should invade these countries and steal their awesome ideas like, you know, single payer health care and, uh, you know, what a manipulative 30 title. hour work That's weeks. Bullshit. And- <laughs> Uh, no, it, it is good. The, the funny part, I went to go see uh, Where to Invade Next with my mother um, during the Democratic primary, and she was like, oh these, are, these are so much, so amazing ideas. Why don't we do this? This is, why don't we have, a f- you know, all this stuff? And I'm like, Mom, don't you realize Meanwhile, this is let's basically... Meanwhile, let's vote for Hillary. Yeah, I was like, Mom, don't you realize this is Bernie Sanders' entire platform? And she paused for a second. She goes... Well, maybe it's not quite right time for us yet. <laughs> like, talk about bias. Talk about, like, well, I just oh don't like God. it because it's not, you know. But, you know, she's not, like, a anyway. bad person. She just has her narrative shaped by the media because that's the narrative that the media pushes on everybody. And it's amazing yeah. that anybody doesn't think that way because that's just what you're told 24-7 is, you know, whatever the establishment says is right. And it's too, you know, these ideas are too crazy, even though every other country in the fucking world does them. Like, you know, it's just I, I so can't blame you, people for being brainwashed. You don't but think I, I do that uh, people... Medicare for more is a good slogan? <laughs> I mean, well, you certainly don't want to give Medicare to everyone. It's not can't do that. Oh, uh, Medicare extra. Medicare, <laughs> <laughs> Medicare for God. some. I mean, that's that's gonna win votes, right? Yeah. No. Totally. <sighs> help us. 
God, shoot me. All right. Well, <laughs> on that note. Our review of this movie was almost as long as the movie you released. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably longer than the fucking movie because I still have that <laughs> other part part of the uh, podcast to edit in that we get cut off. So. Yeah. That's yeah. true. That's all right. I, the, that's the way they should be. Um, yeah. All right. If you're still so, listening, thank you. <laughs> the three of you still listening, thanks for listening. Uh, that's right. If you like us, us this out. much to listen this long, donate some money. <laughs> yeah, just go support yeah. the show on Patreon. You know, we we do this. We pay to do the show basically to, for you know uh, because we enjoy doing it so much. But uh, if you want to support the show, uh, check us out at Patreon.com/slash/MoveLeft. It's only three bucks, and you can actually support it at a lower level. But if you want access to all the old uh, episodes of Movie Left, it's only three bucks a month. Uh, we're going to be doing a lot more of those, uh, hopefully in the coming you know, months. So uh, let, uh, check us out over there. Hit us up on Facebook, or on, on Twitter, and on Facebook, uh, and let us know what movies you'd like to see us cover. Um, we're at Twitter. Well, I'm at twitter.com uh, at move underscore left. Uh, LaDonna. And um, at a polybent, P-O-L-I-B-E-N-T. Uh, and uh, Move Left Idiots on Facebook is just the URL is uh, facebook.com backslash Move Left Idiots. Um, you can find me at KSBot5000. Yeah. And uh, come back and join us later in the week for our main show. And uh, thanks for listening to Movie Left.